I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to kick this off? Absolutely. Uh, we got a special guest with us. He's been with us before. And I got to say, he's got an excellent name. Tom, how you doing? Doing good. How are you guys doing? Very good. Very good. And I, I just want to say real quick, if you like the show, just click the like and subscribe button. And if you want to support the show, you can do so for as little as a dollar. And uh, we got a link in the description. All right. So, Tom, how you doing? Doing good. Just sitting here doing some West Coast native art, doing a spirit bear, a white black bear. Awesome. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, how I, that's how I keep busy. That's one of my jobs, is doing West Coast native art of Sasquatches and other animals. Uh, it's got to be a lot of fun, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's being your own boss and you get to work from home. You can't, can't argue with that. No, absolutely not. So we've got Tom Seward today, and Tom, you've been with us in the past, and we're just we're going to jump right in. There was something that you had mentioned to us before about Bigfoot and Native culture going out and kidnapping the Native women. And can you tell us a little bit of the um, history of that and what? Give us an interpretation of what you think's going on. Well, reading the books and, uh, you know, the archival stuff of Sasquatch Bigfoot reports, there's a lot of uh, reference to the North American Indians talking about their woman being kidnapped and taken away by the other tribe, the Sasquatch. And uh, there's even, you know, from my tribe, the Kwakwaki Walk from Northern Vancouver Island, British Columbia, uh, it translates to meaning wild woman of the woods and you tell your children and they can understand that they behave themselves because Chonach is always watching and she can't touch you as a child unless you misbehave and if you act up and pull a temper tantrum break things just be a brat well Chonach is going to come at night and with big hairy arm she's going to stick it through the door of the big houses in the old days or the crack in the planks Modern days, we tell the kids they're gonna, she's going to stick her big hairy arm through the porthole of the boat we're sleeping on or in the tent or in the cabin or in your bedroom. So you better behave yourself. And, you know, I was brought up with that story. And they say that Jonah was, when she grabs the misbehaving children, she rubs spruce sap, uh, the spruce tree, a type of evergreen here that grows throughout basically all, quite a bit of North America, especially the northern part and the coastal regions and branches break and there's scars on the trunks and you'll see gallons of this crystallized runny sap. And that's what we use to attach our 
spearheads and arrowheads to the shafts, but it's really sticky. And that's what Tonacha rubs in the child's eyes so they can't open them, they're blind. And she throws them in her basket on her back or in a sack and she carries the misbehaving children deep into the forest and up the mountains to her invisible home. And that's where she boils up the children and eats them. So it's our boogeyman, I guess you could say. But when you think about it, how, you know, the native people, my tribe, the Kwakwakiwak and others from the Pacific Northwest coastal region talk about this hair covered giant female Sasquatch in the forest in their regions that takes children. And then you hear the stories, you know, of kids going missing and, uh, you know, uh, that one young boy, you know, comes to mind three or four years ago where he was lost for a few days. And when he was found, he said, the black bear looked after me. You know, no black bear is going to look after a young kid. They'll eat him. That was a Sasquatch that looked after that young boy that was lost until rescuers got close and Sasquatch probably backed off and the kid was rescued. Even in Omaha Indian Reservation in Nebraska, I've spent uh, three times there investigating and I have a good Omaha tribal member named Lucas White, who I, I don't know if I mentioned it in the last first episode I did with you, but when I went there, about, I guess, four years ago. And uh, I met up with Lucas and we spent over a week together and we saw a couple, what they call Sitonga. And uh, we saw them with the Fleur and my cell phone. And uh, we heard them mimicking night birds. Uh, we heard them tree breaking and all kinds of, there's so many Sasquatches in Omaha Indian Reservation. But he would teach me that, uh, you know, they have the same stories, and that's in central United States, long ways from British Columbia coastal region. And then, I guess it was about two years ago on July 4th, he said that, you know, the friends showed up and family members, and they started to celebrate a little too soon, and they're waiting for it to get dark. And Lucas, I guess, they packed the couch outside on the res, you know, on a res, be on a res, act like you're on a res, have fun. And I guess he curled up on the couch and fell asleep. And he woke up to everyone in alarm, yelling around and calling his daughter's name, who was about four or five years old. Lucas, of course, being a father, jumped up and ran into the bush looking and yelling for her and everything. And he said about 40 minutes after she was disappeared, all of a sudden she comes walking in through the vehicles in the front yard in the driveway. And... You know, she's, everyone, of course, ran up to her. Where were you? What what happened? And she said, the big hairy man picked me up and brought me into the bushes. I could hear you all calling for me, but he told, he put his hand on my mouth to be quiet. And, you know, that's uh, within four years, another incident of child being taken by Sasquatch. So there's so many stories, you know, and a lot of people who are Sasquatch enthusiasts, you know, I never used the term researcher until we get a subject, but, you know, investigators as well, like myself, you know, we've read the books and the internet and watched the TV shows, and there's always reference to Sasquatch taking children and women, and with uh, David Polides, I believe his last name is, you know, I phoned him about an incident in Vancouver Island, and, you know, because I follow some of the posts about his missing 411 and you look at how many thousands of cases of missing people he's been you know investigating and you know some of them he you know he doesn't say it but he per- sort of 
cliffhangers or alludes to possibly Sasquatches taking them. You guys still there? Yeah, I am. Tom, I was just okay. thinking. So, yeah. does this... Okay, so there's a long Native American First Nation history of Sasquatch taking kids and people in general. And do you see stories, modern stories? I think you kind of answered that question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you see that still happening today? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you hear the reference to the cannibal giants, you know, the mountain devils, uh, they'll... They'll, they've been known to kill our people. Uh, can't remember the name of that cave, but they uh, found those big jawbones out of their um, port lock, or not in the port lock, um, something caves anyway, down in Arizona or Nevada, where the local Indians apparently went in and were having people taken by uh, the big Sasquatches, the giant ones, and they knew what cave they were in, so they went and they built a uh, fire outside and uh, smoked them out and suffocated them. And uh, apparently some big body remains were brought out of that cave. But, you know, that story there, you know, the, the tribes got, had fed, were fed up. You know, they'd had enough of these Sasquatches killing their family members and taking them. So they went and did away with them, removed the problem. And, you know, it's indicative of many tribal stories I've heard. When I was 2015, 2016, I lived and worked up in the Northwest Territories, north of Yellowknife, about 25 miles out of town. And I was a watchman and employee at a Aurora View and Resort with 23 teepees for the guests during the winter to stay warm, waiting for the Northern Lights, the Aurora, to come out so they can run outside and scream and take pictures and do what they did. But up there, I, you know, because I'm in the Northwest Territories, I'm new territory to me. So I was hiking and exploring when I wasn't working, going out in the 18-foot Lund aluminum boat into the lake and, you know, going to places that, you know, some little beach and I'd go poke around, you know. What I was doing is just experiencing the land and the animals. But I was also looking for what I found out up there was called Tlaga, their Sasquatch, that was said to be very aggressive, but I was warned, you know, you're going to go out and, you know, do your stuff, bring a gun. I said, oh, no, I bring a gun every time I go. I go, I'm no fool. I've been in the bush a lifetime. I know that you pack a gun with you. And then I would go to the uh, big hotel in downtown Yellowknife because there's so many people from the Inuit tribes up in the uh, Arctic, on the Arctic coast and elsewhere throughout the entire North, uh, northern part of Canada, Nunavut, and uh, Northwest Territories, they would fly to Yellowknife for everything from medical to shopping to dentists, eye appointments, because Yellowknife is the hub of the north, and people get around by uh, airplanes up there, and uh, I'd go up there because I was meeting the Inuit people that were living way out in the middle of nowhere in Kugaluktuk, uh, Tuktiuktuk, Rankin Inlet, and the list goes on, places that most people will never experience in their life. And I was meeting the people that were coming there to Yellowknife. And they had different parkas and styles of clothing. They had heavy accents, spoke English, of course. But of course, I'd bring West Coast native dried red or sockeye salmon, which we call cowas. It's basically salmon jerky. I'd bring it there and there's a outdoor ashtray where everyone would huddle around and they 
had a little heater there and we'd all be dressed in our winter clothes, 30 below, 40 below and smoking cigarettes. And then I'd bring out my dried salmon and tell them where it was from. And I'm a Kwakwakiwak First Nation from Vancouver Island, British Columbia. And their eyes would just open up. We'd talk, you know, exchange culture and heritage and lifestyles in our communication. But I always asked, hey, what these stories do you have on the Sasquatch? And this is why I operate Sasquatch Island and so forth. And man, did I ever hear some amazing stories about Naga. There's nothing up in the Arctic uh, Ocean area, but further south around uh, on a line, just south of Nome on a parallel all the way across North Canada. And south of that, that's where the stories of the bush people are. And in and around Yellowknife is no exception. And Yellowknife is on the Great Slave Lake and on the far east of Great Slave Lake. And this lake is like an ocean. I traveled for one hour on snowmobile and one hour on a speedboat, straight out due south from Yellowknife. And each time I went out there, I never saw land. All I would see would be water when I did it in the summer and then winter, all I saw was ice. It's it's a basically an inland ocean. But at the far east is a community called Lutzolke and uh, Snowflake, it used to be called, and they're uh, Dene uh, indigenous people. They're not Inuit, they're uh, First Nations in Canada. But they live out in the middle of Timbuk, nowhere, and they're on uh, one of the Life Below Zero shows. There's Unfortunately, they don't show the indigenous people from Lutz OK. They show a blonde, blue-eyed, fair-skinned woman with her baby and their non-native husband who works there experiencing the wild. And, when I, I went down the Lutzoke area and met people from there, they spoke a Naga. And we were in uh, Yellowknife, and uh, one of the guys there said, hey, go talk to that guy. He's from that area, and he lived there for most of his life. He was a drummer at this celebration I was at. So I went over, and I started talking to him, and told him who I was in Sasquatch Island. And I said, what do you know about the Naga? And he didn't say anything. He just looked at me like he was looking into my soul. And then I, so I said, I always believe that we never hunt them or harm them. We have to always show them respect, the bush people. And that's when he kind of nodded and he bent down and pulled up his pant leg. And his leg was just raked with like a cougar had torn into him years ago. And he's all scarred up. He goes, that's from Naga. He goes, me and my two brothers were hunting muskox. And uh, we heard noise, so we went to look and what it was was a family of Naga and we spooked them and they we turned to get away from them right away because that's what we're supposed to do as well show them respect but they were angered and they chased us and we were trying to my two brothers ran up this steep rocky uh, outcropping and up there there's you know there's areas that it's like tundra what well, is tundra I guess where there's no trees some trees here and there but I guess they're trying to go up this rock slope and all of a sudden, as he's going up, that Naga has grabbed his leg, and his two brothers had to pull him and tug of war and with him. And the Naga had his leg, and that's where he got the scars from him. They were trying to drag him down. And I think he said one of his brothers discharged the fire uh, rifle, and that's what the Nagas let go and turned and ran away. But they were very aggressive. Up there, they're supposed to be like nine footers plus. They're pretty big up there from what I've heard from the people and very aggressive. And, you know, you hear stories about uh, the Valley of the Headless People. You know, that's northern British Columbia, and that's sort of just south of the latitudes where I was. 
and uh, I just can't remember the name of that park that's up there in northern British Columbia, Stikine or something, not Stikine. Anyway, I can't remember, but Nahani, Nahani Park area. But there's a valley. Let me, uh, I'm gonna, let me ask you, do you yeah. have any stories on, from the Nahani Valley? Because I've heard those and they're just downright scary. There's nothing good about them. Oh, no. Like it's, you know, there's, you got to remember that those are ones that have removed themselves far, far away from human activity. And they don't want humans coming around. They're all Sasquatch like that. They don't want us around them. They hate us, despise us, loathe us. You know, they pity us. And it's better just to stay away from us because we're nothing but disease-carrying, environmental-destroying parasites. And, you know, and so if you go into some of their areas and you don't show respect, and even other areas, even if you do show respect, which we had happen to us in the late 80s, we went into an area and, uh, you know, we were talking, you know, yo, yo, tonakha. it's we're just coming hunting. And, you know, we're just doing what we're taught, you know, and we never seen anything or heard anything to show uh, that we weren't, you know, wanted. But when we got to the, from saltwater, we walked up a mountain, you know, we're young bucks, we're in good shape. And uh, we got up to this waterfall. We we're going to climb up the sides of the waterfall, two hunters on each side to look over the crest. And there would be a lake with a bowl-shaped lake where mountain goats were because I'd flown over in a helicopter a few times because I was doing enumeration on salmon up in the inlets. And I told him, I said, every time I fly over this little lake, it's really blue-colored because of the copper sulfate or something. I don't know, but it's really blue, and we always fly over it. And, but every time we go over, we always see the big mountain goats and herds of them. So that's what we we're going to do. And as we were going up that waterfall, all of a sudden, tree knocks exploded. And we got down from the waterfall because we knew we were being told, stop, turn around, go back where you came from. So we gathered up our, not heavy packs, you know, day packs, overnight packs. And we turned and we started walking down that stream to go back to the boat. Well, they let us know that we weren't to be walking. We were running, leaping, tumbling, sprinting as fast as the four of us could go to get out of there. And when we got to the salt water, our aluminum skiff, which was uh, 20 foot long by about 10 feet wide, called a herring punt with a uh, big, huge hundred and something horsepower outboard motor on it. It was dry above, you know, above the water because the tide had gone down. We we're not expecting to go back till the following day when the tide was up. And you never saw four guys get that big aluminum skiff off that rock beat so fast. You know, we'd use pry, pry logs and everything, but we got it out of there because we knew we weren't welcome. And you know, that was one of my incidences where I really saw the aggression from Sasquatches. And, you know, you don't play around with it. And you're not, not going to hold your ground, especially us. We were in like a little ca miniature canyon in that stream. So they had the upper high ground advantage. So we weren't going to discharge any rifle. You know, we just wanted to get out of there. Yeah, that's got to be a real spooky situation. We have a uh, saying, Will and I do, in a situation like that, we're going to go to dynamite. Um, so, Tom, what, what other um, personal encounters? Because you had some really interesting ones last time. And can you share oh, yeah. some other encounters that you've had, direct encounters with these? Well, it's 
and I had a distant relative, and he, he liked to go up in the Alpines, you know, when we could finish the sockeye season in the uh, end of August. We had a closure time until the fall dog salmon, chum salmon commercial fishery started. So, you know, September's Indian summer. So as soon as we knew we weren't going to fish again, he'd go, come on, Tom, let's go. And he suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome. So, you know, you could say he wasn't the fastest or person to think, and he wasn't the brightest apple in the box, you know, by any means. But bush-wise, he was very, very, very sharp and smart. So we'd go up and get loggers to bring us up as high as they could in the logging roads they were working on or building. And, uh, you know, you just brought in a case of lucky beer and, you know, they drive you right to the end of the road and drop you off. And two crazy Indians would disappear up the timber and within an hour or two, we'd be busting through into the Alpines. And that's where we stayed. We'd made, we stayed in Alpines. And if we explored that entire Alpine, we'd go down through the timber, cross a river, go up the forest again, punch through that timber and into the alpines and, you know you never thought about sasquatch back then you know i wasn't an investigator i'd read the books john green and everything and saw the leonard nimoy tv show and a few others at that time but you never thought about it because you open bush you want to be crispy you don't want to be spooked because some t- twig snapped because no it's a sasquatch you never do that so you're just out doing your thing and you know you get that feeling and you know you look from the edge of your eyes you saw something you'd look and you'd see nothing but you know you saw a shadow move maybe it was a black bear maybe it was a big elk or a deer but then there'd be times when wayne would you know all of a sudden come up and he'd be sitting like six inches from me as the sun setting like what's up wayne oh they're looking at us Tom. they're all around us right now how do you know oh i was out there looking for some berries and I looked up and I saw one of them looking at me. I could smell them. I'm like, so what do we do? And he goes, oh, better sleep with your gun tight to you tonight. He'd go and we'd sleep back to back. Usually in a crevice, we'd be leaning against each other or we'd bring a bunch of grass in and, and, uh, cause we're an alpine. There's no bush up there hardly. And, you know, we'd always be prepared just in case something happened. So it's, so it's, you it was something that you knew that you had to respect them. And by waving your gun around or letting a shot off and screaming at them like they do in Hollywood movies, you do not do that. You do not want to ignite their fuse. Because if you do, you know, all hell is going to break loose like we had happened in my sea kayak camp in 2006. When we were basically pushed out of there. But what I figured was three of them from... I saw one big male, we had a big boulder rolled down into our camp where the cabins were. My dog, who was a bush dog, six years old, and, you know, I taught him to, you know, get between me and bears, and he wasn't afraid of bears by any means, Golden Lab Cross. And he was so scared when he looked behind that shaken tree and on the cliff and saw that whatever he saw, which would have been a Sasquatch shaking those two trees. You know, he was just a golden lab blur with a tail between his legs as he ran by me and jumped in the dinghy waiting to go out to the 12 passenger aluminum tour boat I had and uh, you know we had to get out of there because it got really hostile like they were mad you know shaking trees screaming and when I was looking behind the cabin and you know into the bush in the V there's this seven foot four Sasquatch looking at me and I know he was seven foot four because I had the wherewithal to look at him standing in the V of those cedar trees and I could see him from 
just, I couldn't see his nipples, but just above on his chest up and these big, broad shoulders, three, almost three times wider than mine. You know, I'm an FBI friggin' big Indian, you know, I'm 210 pounds. So, you know, I got a little bit of shoulder, but this thing had huge shoulders. And the thing just, him and I just eye locked. And then all of a sudden he just made this big grimace and his tendons and neck wrinkled up. And he just leaned at me with these eyes that were squinted. Like he was giving me that beep off, you son of a beep. And I'm just like, okay, everyone get the thingies. We're out of here. You know, you know, I seen aggression. I seen, you know, that this is the, 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 la- the first and only warning you get. After this, I'm going to go ballistic on you. So I knew we had to get out of there, which we did. And the next day I'm sitting there going, this is my sea kayak camp. This is my livelihood. This is how I trying to pay my 5,000 plus a month mortgage for my house and my tour boat and feed my two young kids and everything else. I can't be leaving this place. I can't be afraid. So the next morning I phoned a buddy of mine and picked them up and had another one show up. And the three of us went in there and, uh, and we were driving in on my pickup truck and we had rifles and shotguns and on the way in. I just kept drinking this gallon of water. When we got to the camp. We went down and walked down the hill from the logging road. It's about a 10-minute walk in. And once I got down into the sea level base where the five cabins are, I just started urinating all over my camp as me and my buddies were letting off rifles and shotguns. I was yelling away, this is my place. You stay out of here. It's mine now. And, you know, I urinated as much as I could. I made my stand. I let the guns go off. I let them know that, uh, yeah, you might have won the skirmish yesterday, but the war, I'm going to win it. This is my turf now. And after that, I had relative peace with them for years. You know, so it's they, they're intelligent. They're humans. They're feral humans as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, they get, you know, like, and that's how you, a lot of people, I think, make the mistake as soon as they go, do you think they have a language? Do you think they make structures? Do you think, and I'm like, oh God, they think they've forgotten more about Bush than we'll ever know. And yes, they think they might have a sloping forehead, but they have well-developed frontal lobes to rhyme and reason and figure things out. And they never forget a human, you know, like me, there's uh, one big Sasquatch up in my traditional territories that we, we called crease because he likes to stay on crease Island. It's called. And, this other island next to it. He's a homestead Sasquatch. He's been there since early 90s that I know. I haven't been up there in four or five years, so I don't know if he's still around or alive. But the whole time I was up there, you know, I'd go on those islands, Crease, or Crease Island, for one I went on there to go pick chanterelle mushrooms. Uh, they're edible and you can sell them. And he threw rocks and sticks at me and pushed a dead tree down. He let it be known when I was 250 yards in, off the beach in the forest. I was not welcome on that island. A buddy of mine saw him. He was a watchman for a dentist who was a millionaire and had a mansion estate on this island called Alder Island. And you people that are listening to me, I'm not hiding anything. You can look on the chart on the Broughton Archipelago off northeastern Vancouver Island. But in the Indian and Village Channels, it's a labyrinth of the Western Gateway to the Broughton Archipelago, a thousand islands plus. But in Alder Island, where my buddy was a watchman for his millionaire dentist during the fall through the early spring, he phoned me one time and he goes, Tom, he goes, I saw that Sasquatch. I think it's the one you're talking about. He's really big and he's really ornery. He's just like 
growled at me and threw a clods of moss and dirt at me. And I said, what do you do? He goes, what do you think I did? I did about a hundred miles an hour back through the lodge. I wasn't going to stay outside with him around. He goes, but I'm in town right now. I ran in, there's no wind. And I ran in to get provisions. What should I do? And I said, I don't know, maybe buy some fruit. And uh, when you're walking up from the dock to the lodge, which is probably a quarter mile, it's a long driveway. I said, you know, maybe put some fruit out on the driveway for him halfway up, you know, a little token of, you know, hey, I'm, I'm feeding you, you know, be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. So he goes, yeah, okay. And this is about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning when he phoned me. So that afternoon, about three o'clock, my phone rings again. I see it's my buddy, Scott. So I'm like, hey, what's up, Scott? He doesn't like oranges. I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, I left, uh, and I left, uh, two oranges on the driveway and uh, and uh he goes i got back you know i walked up putting two oranges down I was, sorry about that people i was just waving at my two neighbors there while we go out for dinner but anyway he put the oranges on the road and he went to the lodge which he said probably three minute walk and from where he put them down and he said he's in there putting his groceries away in the kitchen all of a sudden bam bam he opens the door looks out and there's two big navel oranges disintegrated on the porch <laughs> he goes don't think crease likes oranges and i said well you better try apples next time <laughs> yeah wow no kidding so you know i'm just leading you guys up to the real the main feature don't you so let's get to one of the good ones so stephen major who a lot of people out there know he wanted me to do a bunch of stuff with him and I did in the past the expedition with them where we recorded that Sasquatch on Fleur for 16 minutes. Um, we don't like sharing it, you know, I'll share it on emails now, but I don't like posting on Facebook. There's too many Karens out there start whining and bitching at me. That is blurry. So they ruined it. I'm not going to bother posting it or share it other ways. But anyway, uh, Stephen and I, you know, we talked quite a bit about Sasquatch and he wanted to go to Northern Vancouver Island, of course. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. So we drove up there and, and uh, did some ex investigating and that. But while he was up there, he talked to a waitress in a restaurant because, you know, they see these crazy buggers drinking beer and eating burgers and they got Sasquatch embroidered decals on their decals in the United States but on their hats and their jackets and they're right away to questions. Oh, you guys Sasquatch researchers? No, we're investigators and we're looking for them and so forth. And after a while, she, after serving us, she said, gave us the story about how her husband was a logger and that he come home from work and said that his buddy had a sister that uh, used to always drive up from the south end of Vancouver Island, some, I guess, maybe close to 200 mile drive. But uh, she'd phone and say, yeah, I'm, after work, I'm going to drive up. If I get tired, I'll pull over to the rest stop and grab a sleep, and I'll be up there in the morning. It was routine. So the brother's like, yeah, okay, we'll be expecting you in the morning then. Well, the next morning, no sister. So they thought maybe she got laid up or whatever. But I guess the police came, and he had to identify the remains, and it was his sister. She was decapitated. Her left arm was torn off. Her body was pummeled. The clothing was intact, it wasn't torn off, and she wasn't sexually abused. She was pulled over in a rest stop that we call Big Tree uh, Rest Stop. And it's if you go on a Vancouver Island Highway and you pass Campbell River heading up towards Port McNeil, Port Hardy, 
you'll come to Roberts Lake on your right. A lot of stories there about Sasquatch, but about, I guess, maybe six miles, seven miles past that, there's this bridge on the Big Tree Creek or brackets, Luqua in our language means big tree. But I guess on the right-hand side, there was this rest stop. Used to have cement picnic tables, cement outhouses, uh, cement garbage cans that were semi-bear-proof. But I guess she pulled in there and she was having her rest and that's where they found her body. And we don't, no one knows what happened, but the police said, because apparently, I guess it was early spring when it happened. And they told the family that we know there's a serial killer on Vancouver Island, but we don't suspect it was that serial killer that got your sister. We don't, we know it wasn't wolves, bears, or cougars. We suspect it was Sasquatch. We'd like to keep that out of the media and off the radar because we don't want to spook the tourists that they don't come here. And we don't want everyone running around the forest with tourists out there camping and mountain biking and whatever else with uh, camo and guns shooting everything that goes snap pop in the bush. So the family kept it off the radar and it's been off to this date. Uh, I tried to interview the police, but then they have a, uh, loophole in Canada, they say, oh, well, you can go through the Freedom of Information Act and ask for the records from that time period. We don't have them here at the precinct. Bunch of BS and malarkey, but anyway, they brushed me off and I couldn't get me, you know, solid report on what took place. But a lot of people have talked about that incident that supposedly took place on Vancouver Island. And then you go into Campbell River and you'll see billboards, up. not big ones, but you'll see billboards and you'll see eight by 10 printouts in the windows of restaurants and stores about a teenager who was 16, five years ago, who went missing. And same thing, they suspect that uh, Sasquatch apprehended him and they, he was in his house in the basement and uh, his mother had a unique trailer in a trailer park at the edge of Campbell River on the north side up on a hill and it's backed by the timber, the forest. Well, I guess uh, bear was coming in like every trailer park and urban edged area. And uh, the mother tried to let the dog out, but the dog wouldn't go off the porch and ran back inside. So she heard something. So she told her son downstairs, oh, that bear must be back. He goes, oh, okay, mom, I'll go scare it away. And he grabbed the flashlight out the back door. She closed it. And all of a sudden she realized her son didn't come back in. So she went out and called and kind of looked for him a little bit. No reply, of course. So she got worried and told the neighbors. The neighbors started looking. And then the police got involved. And to this day, he's uh, missing. And his posters for this young teenager are still all around Campbell River. And a lot of people suspect it was the Sasquatch that took him as well. And what? I, I apologize. What what was the date or approximate time frame this happened? Oh, four years ago. Oh, this and, is uh, very yeah, recent. You can, yeah, and I can't. I, I mean, I'll respect to the family. I'm not going to say who the boy was or anything. Yes. But, no, no, no. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. But um, there's so many reports. Like I know Dr. John Bindernagel. You know, he was my good buddy, and uh, I remember he, him and I sitting there and John's all excited when I said, Hey John, how many people have gone missing in Strathcona Park that you know of in the last 10, 20, 20 years? Oh John, the way he was, you get all excited and you oh 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 Tom, 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 I've been researching that. Tom, oh God, I gotta get it, Tom. Just wait here. And he'd be digging through cardboard boxes, 
and he'd pull out his notes and binder and he'd be all excited right here. This person went missing. Then this person went missing. Then, and, you know, he, it's still in his notes. And I told, uh, Chris Bindernagel, his son, I said, if you're approached by anyone who wants to buy your dad's notes, don't sell them. And I said, and if your family needs money, tell me, and I'll try to muster up some funds so that we can give you guys some money, not for the notes, but just so you guys can hang on to them so that when we do have a museum with an area with uh, your father's, you know, notes and other things and plaster casts, you know, it'd be nice to have that in the archives for Vancouver Island and other research investigators out there. So anyway, John was all excited talking about it. And he really educated me that, you know, wow, a lot of people have gone missing on Vancouver Island. Like, I wonder why people call it Ape Island. And, you know, they go to places like Forbidden Plateau above Courtney, Cumberland on Vancouver Island's eastern side. It used to be a ski resort up there called Forbidden Plateau Resort. Now Mount Washington's on the next mountain. And that resort had too much snow on the roof and it collapsed, caught fire. It's gone, but you can still see the old uh, ski runs from the highway and from down below. But a lot of it, people go investigating Sasquatch up there because, you know, John made Mount Washington for Midden Plateau famous because he said the Indians from the area, the Comox uh, people, uh, they said that you don't go up there. That's why it's called Forbidden Plateau. You know, it's people go missing up there. And this is their ancient history, oral history. And still to this day, hikers and others are going missing in the Forbidden Plateau area of Strathcona Park's southeast corner. But uh, on, the, on the west side of Strathcona Park, which is Gold River on the highway, top of an inlet on the west side of Vancouver Island, uh, there's all kinds of stories there of uh, aggressive Sasquatches as well up in the Alpines. You hear it from the hikers and different people who go up there. There's a gentleman that was studying marmots on Vancouver Island, and apparently he had some pretty aggressive encounters with something up in the Alpines during the summer trapping season, the marmots, the tag them and radio calling them. You know, it's interesting because everything you're talking about, we hear this. Definitely, you know, Northern California, Oregon, Washington, but also throughout the United States. So it's a, it's a repeating pattern. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was if you have, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it. And if you have any additional information on the feet that end up, you know, in, in uh, uh, Puget Sound and, and up around Vancouver Island, that I think they... You know, they wash, they end up in the creeks and wash up into the, uh, into the ocean. Yeah, I think the gangs, because uh, uh, I heard quite a few of them are Asian descent from the DNA and that. But I think the Asian gangs in Vancouver and, you know, we have the East Indian, uh, Indo-Canadians, they call themselves now, in, uh, along the Fraser River as well. I think they've clued in that the best way to get rid of a body is to chop it up and throw it into the muddy Fraser River because the sturgeon are going to suck it up. You know, we've got sturgeons up to 1,000 pounds or more in that uh, river system. So I think they figured that out because the Asian people still to this day are getting busted for 
poaching sturgeons. They like eating them, and no one's allowed to retain sturgeon. They're an endangered species. But I think they're gangs, you know, growing up eating sturgeon and hearing the stories about the 1,200 pounders and the dead miner who was found in the stomach of a big sturgeon back in the early 1900s. I think they just put two and two together and said, hey, let's just chop up our enemy here and throw him in the freezer. Oops, forgot to take off his running shoe and, you know, sort of thing. And I think that's what's happening. The running shoe keeps the foot loaded. But definitely not Sasquatch. Still there? Okay, yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. So the okay. other question I have is, you travel back and forth between uh, British Columbia and and state of Washington. Um, what what do you um, where do you get the most reports from? Is it from your uh, territory up there in in uh, BC, or what about right down here in uh, Washington? British Columbia, far more. Just that they're not recorded. Like that's what uh, Carrie Kilmurray Clausen. Um, she's on Vancouver Island. She's one of our Sasquatch Island uh, team members, and she's done a map. And I'll try to send you a link to it. But uh, her and I are. She's come to me because I know so many reports. I have a photographic memory for things that interest me and uh, native culture, art, and and Sasquatch stuff for hunting. Those are my interests and fishing, of course, and. So I have, I can remember what someone told me sitting on a bulwark hatch cover of a boat back in the late 1970s about Sasquatch. So she's getting all these reports from me. And, you know, we last three times we've sat down together. The map is just chock-a-block full of footprints and, uh, and uh, Bigfoot silhouettes showing the different uh, sightings. And then when you click the icon, up comes a little paragraph or more explaining what took place at that encounter. And Vancouver Islands, pretty soon you're not even going to be able to see it from all the icons that are going to be on top of it. You know, it's like bank the island highway between Campbell River and uh, Port, Har- Port McNeil, Port Hardy. You know, I drive up there all the time and, you know, people, whether it be Peggy or others, they're just like, wow, there's a lot of Sasquatch encounters on this highway. I'm like, yeah, how many so far? God, there's got to be at least over 20 that you told us. And I'm pointing out, oh, so-and-so saw a Sasquatch run across here in 1985, put its right arm up in front of its face as it's standing at the edge of the highway, and it just dashed across the highway in three big steps and put its arms down, bent, and sprung like a bullfrog and landed way down there, about 30 feet down in that uh, soft, not a swamp, but it's a muskeg area. And, you know, that was 2.30 in the afternoon in the summertime. And he worked for the federal government. So, he, you know, and still to this day, he admits he saw a Sasquatch on that highway. So there's all these different reports. And it's just, and now with the modern day smoke signal, Facebook and Facebook Messenger, you know, I got to shut my ringer off at night. Otherwise, it's my messenger goes off and I answer it. Hello, how you doing? Hey, Tom, it's so-and-so calling you from Clem too. Can you hear them? And I'm listening away and you can hear all this screaming and whooping and a tree knock. And he's like, good, oh, the son of the big fellas are making a ruckus behind my house here in Clem too tonight. Me and my wife are lying in bed. I'm like, go on the porch and see if you can see them. I ain't going on the porch. I'm staying right here in bed with my wife. <laughs> so, you know, 
Facebook Messenger is just unbelievable. Like up in uh, Nash River and uh, Grenville and Kit One Ga, Kit One Cool and Terrace, Queen Charlotte Islands, Vancouver Island, British Columbia as a whole, even Saskatchewan. I'm getting people that are Indigenous First Nations calling me because, you know, you got to remember that a lot of Indians to this day, you know, like I was talking on a podcast last night that wasn't, it was hunting related, but I said, you got to remember as Indians were forced into the confines of these things called Indian reservations. And we were told you stay there. It's illegal for you to leave without a letter from the Indian agent, who's probably going to show up maybe once a year if you're lucky. So you're, you're exiled to the confines of your Indian reserve in Canada for generations you know, up until basically 1934, when my grandfather fought the law and won. But, you know, Indian people were told, you stay in the Indian Reserve, you're only seen when we want to see you and you're only heard when we want to hear you speak, which wasn't too often. So a lot of Indians still carry that stigma with them that are living on Indian reservations. And, you know, that's why they don't reach out too much to the Sasquatch uh, investigators that are out there and podcasters and so forth. But then all of a sudden, five, six years ago, off comes Tom Seawood with Sasquatch Island when he took over the Facebook group from a buddy of mine. And I start posting the indigenous, my personal accounts, my perspectives and beliefs as a bushman, uh, Sasquatch, you know, being around Sasquatches all my life when I lived in Bush and stories I heard, whether it be oral uh, legends and stories or what I saw in a potlatch with a family doing, dancing their regalia. And then all of a sudden I'm on TV shows and different things. And, you know, I get a little bit of that, I guess you could say quasi celebrity status to my fellow indigenous people. So it's a big thing. Like, you know, I'll, someone will be texting me on Facebook or on messenger. And I'll just say, I'm, I can't be texting all day long here. I'm getting sick of it. So I'll just hit the video or the phone icon. Next thing you know, I'm looking at some person I've never seen before. And it's like, Tom Seward, you called me. Yeah. I want to hear your report, man. What's going on up there? Oh man, is it ever scary? And then they just go off and give me this in-depth report on what took place the day before or that night. So it's really nice being able to, you know, be that person in the Sasquatch Bigfoot uh, community as humans that are interacting, communicating, posting, sharing, you know, our, our, what we're coming across. But now the indigenous people have this fellow Indian that, you know, they feel more comfortable with. And, you know, that's why I don't exploit them. I don't put their names out there. I don't write a book with their names and reports to make money off them. You know, I, you know, I'm just respectfully sharing their account in most cases, not given names. And in a lot of cases, not given exact locations because some tribes don't want people showing up in boats in the summertime and storm in the docks and Clem two and Hartley Bay and other places that are isolated communities in the British Columbia coast. But I'll tell you one thing, they all got stories about Sasquatches taking their children and their woman and a few of their hunters as well. Yeah. Excuse me. That's, that's the part that I find very disturbing and frankly, uh, you know, just creepy. But the fact that it it's it's a, it's got historic precedence, and it's happening today. That's that's really, again, very very disturbing. Well, it's not disturbing. 
it's normal. Everything gets pooped out in the forest. Everything. You know, a worm dies, something's going to poop a worm out. Grizzly bear dies. A lot of things are going to eat that grizzly bear. Some with wings, some that slither, some that have four legs. And eventually the grizzly bear gets pooped out 10,000 times and all he is is bones and fur in the forest floor. So it's nature's code. Everything gets pooped out. And it's up to us humans to show that we can respect Sasquatch so we don't end up being a Sasquatch steam and coiler in the forest. And that's the way I look at it. And that's what I teach people is be respectful of the Sasquatch. But one of the things you have to keep in mind is rogues. Like Lucas White in Omaha Indian Reserve, when he taught me that they're like a military operation, the way the Sasquatch clan operates. There's the the woman, children, and elderly in the nucleus. Outside of that is a ring of scouts, and outside of that is a few more scouts, and then you have the hunters. And within a clan, you have harvesters, pardon me, hunters, scouts, and rogues are not a part of the community. You don't want to see the rogues, Tom. And if you do come across an area with a rogue, get out of there. Said, How come? Well, not good. Rogues are angry, mad. So when he told me that in his layman's terms, you know, he, Lucas is a very nice guy and very Bush knowledgeable. When I came back to Kent, Washington from my second trip to the Omaha Indian Reservation, I spent so much time with Lucas. I emailed Dr. Jeff Meldrum, Dr. John Bindernagel, Les Stroud, and uh, Todd Neese. And I said, the title of my email was, I have found Tarzan. Because Lucas lived with the Sasquatches. When he was 10 years old or 11, his father died of a heart attack, alcoholic, living on the farm out in the fringe of Macy, Nebraska. And he ran to the neighbors a mile away. They drove him back and put a blanket over his dad and Police came, of course, and all that, uh, social services and the police. Now, you got to remember, as Indians, we fear two things in the world, police and social services, because the police take our parents and social services take our children. And to this day, we have that fear. Well, Lucas, all of a sudden now, is surrounded by social service workers and police, and they bring them 20-plus miles out of the Indian Reserve that evening, and drop him off to non-Indian farmer foster parents. That night he stole food and blankets and jacket, and he slipped out of the house and took him three days to make his way back at 10 or 11 back to Macy Indian Reserve and try to interact with his cousins and play with them, but the parents shoot him away because they said, we can't harbor you, Lucas. The police will take our take me away and the social services will take our children. Here's some money, here's some food, you go away. And then Lucas had to sleep in an abandoned house the first night. Um, what do you call it? A pack of dogs tried to get in on him. He had to hide in the closet. The next night, he slept in a tree above his grandfather's front yard. The next morning, his grandfather's there with a long stick poking him as he's, Lucas is tied in a Y of uh, black walnut or a chestnut tree. I can't remember which type. But as you know, you people who know those trees, we don't have them out where I am. But anyway, it's kind of splayed and veed, and that's where you're sleeping. His grandfather said, Lucas, you can't stay in town. You've got to go like we your dad taught you and I taught you. The people that have died and the families left their houses, they're the shrines for their spirits, their family members. They put food and blankets and pillows in there from time to time. They renew it through the years till eventually the 
forest starts to grow around it. And Lucas showed me when you drive through the Nebraska area in the Indian Reserve and you see these basically clear cuts, they're uh, corn and soybean fields, and you see these little islands, a little island of trees out there. And he goes, that's one of the houses in the trees. Uh, there's another one way over there. He'd show them to me. He said, that's where I ran away to that March. And I would stay in those houses. And that third or fourth night he was out there, he had a big sitonga. He said he heard something. So he looked out where the window should have been. It was busted out. And it was an uninsulated shack, basically, with cracks between the planks because the batten had been falling off years before. And he saw this big sitonga walking through the bushes as it's getting dark towards the house. So he ran to his blankets and dove underneath and hid. And he said he could hear that sad sitonga come right up to the house. And it leaned against the house because he could hear the whole thing creaking the shack. And then all of a sudden it began to hum a lullaby. And he hummed it. I can't remember how it went, but he hummed the lullaby. And I said, what'd you do then? He goes, I climbed out of my blankets with my head and I looked and where the cracks are between the planks, I could see its hair. And he showed me how he brushed it with the back of his hand and I smelled it. And he said, it stopped humming. And then I brushed it and then it started humming again. I went to sleep. And I said, you son of a gun, I knew damn well a kid who went out from March until October when it started getting cold and you walked into Macy and got apprehended by the police and social services. You went to daycare or foster care until the following March and you stole money and food again and you went back to Macy and lived in the forest in and around Macy. And then next October, you got apprehended again because the winter went to foster care and school. I said... There's no bloody way a 10, 11-year-old to 15 could do that alone. Sitongas looked after you. And he just looked down and, and he looked up. He goes, Tom, I have a lot to tell you. In time, I will tell you more. And we have a relationship. But Indians don't just all of a sudden start spilling their beans like I am on this podcast right now. You know, they'll, it might take them. You know, it's been four years now. It might take them another year or two. We're flying them out here and... Uh, May, long weekend, 28th, 29th, he'll be in Forks, Washington. Peggy and I are flying him out from Macy, Nebraska to come to the Forks first annual Sasquatch Festival that uh, SasquatchLegend.com is hosting. And if you want tickets, SasquatchLegend.com and uh, get a hold of Ken and uh, come to that festival because Peggy and I are going to perform, but you'll be able to meet Lucas. You'll be able to meet Tarzan, the kid who lived with the Sitonga of the Omaha Indian Reserve for many years. And he's still trying to get that Diane Fossey, Jane Goodall interaction with them. Um, it's starting to warm up now. So hopefully in the next month or so, he should have uh, be out there in the field and I got to send him another cell phone. The other one wore out and maybe send him a FLIR night vision to use so he can record them. But uh, he's got some very interesting stuff, but he's taught me and I teach you listening rogues. Be very, very cautious of rogues. Uh, what a rogue is, from my gathering anyway, is in the forest bush code, the golden book of bush, I like to call it. There'll always be a male going to challenge the head male of a clan or a pack and oust them. Now, once that wolf or that uh, animal gets ousted from the clan, well, it has two choices. 
it can stick around and be inferior to even the pups and the lowest status wolf in the pack and come in after everyone else is eaten and eat the scraps. And if he does try to push his boundaries, he gets attacked in mass by the pack because he's been ousted as the leader. He's no longer the alpha male. The other choice that alpha male has, when you go into British Columbia and when I was a grizzly bear hunting guide for years, you would find big grizzly bear tracks. Oh, there's a trophy. Look at that size of that. It's like a dinner plate. And then you'd see a wolf track real big beside it, in some cases in the grizzly bear track. And what it was was a old arthritis, probably got cataracts, abscessed tooth in his final years grizzly bear teams up with an alpha male wolf that got ousted from a pack and together they hunt together and they share the kill together and that guy in finland photographed that grizzly bear with that big male wolf so it happens i've seen it and that guy from finland on the internet if you google grizzly bear and a wolf you'll see those pictures and it's just amazing high resolution and it proves that old grizzly bears will team up with an old ousted rogue wolf. So think about you as a male listening and you guys that are listening to me here on this podcast. When all of a sudden your girlfriend got rid of you, or your wife pointed at the door and told you to get the beep out. Well, your mind goes, you get really angry. You know, you just got done bad. I just had all my money. I worked so hard taken away, my house taken away, my vehicles, my boat. You just rage inside. And I was like that when I got sued in 2007. I was angry, very angry that I'd been sued for $640,000 by two sea kayak companies. And this Indian had to declare bankruptcy. And I went from being almost a millionaire to a flat broke bankrupt Indian without a bank, bank account after two court cases. And then a month and a half later, my mother, my children, and I, we moved to Queen Charlotte Islands, Haida Gwaii, because she has a social work degree. And uh, we were together up there until March of 2008, when she pointed to the door and told me to get the beep out. So when an Indian loses his company, his home, his sea kayak fleet, his $260, $1,000 tour boat, his $54,000 in two bank accounts, garnish sheet overnight, he gets angry. And then if within 10 months when his mate points to the door and tells him to get the beep out, and he's an Indian and she's a non-Indian social worker, a snowflake has more chance of survival in hell than this Indian had of having my children ever live under my roof again until they're 18 or older. And I lost my children. And that's when I moved back to Vancouver Island and I had some very, very nasty thoughts in my mind. I was doing like Hulk. I was doing like a werewolf. I was transforming into this raging human, bushman, Indian, commercial fisherman, grizzly bear hunting, mad, rogue human. And when I pulled into Campbell River, there was a sign on this hotel that this Christian manager would always put a new quote up every month. And as I pulled in the Campbell River with all my guns and my fishing gear and my carving tools and what clothes I could fit in my Jeep Cherokee with this raging rogue mindset and ready to do some serious harm, all of a sudden I read the quote, success is not defined on how high you reach. 
it's how high you bounce after you've hit rock bottom. And I said, Thomas Seawood, you best be bouncing. And I've been bouncing ever since. But what I did that March is I put all my stuff into storage and I took my guns and my fishing gear and my bush kit and I went into the bush and I went rogue human for until, I guess, about two and a half years later when Peggy finally convinced me, why don't you come down to Kent, Washington and spend a few weeks down there? And after about three weeks here, she looked at me looking out the window at the mountains and Mount Rainier and the trees way off to the horizon. And she, when we were driving into Seattle, she saw me looking at the you know, white snow capped Olympic Peninsula mountains. And she goes, Tom, go back to Canada, go back to Bush. I could see it in you. Your wild's coming out again. So I'm still like that. So I can understand how Sasquatches are. So when they get ousted from a younger, stronger male, they have that choice like that wolf, either eat the scraps and be pummeled by the clan continually or go on your own. And like Tom Seawood was in March of 2008, when he came back from Haida Gwaii, that rogue is raging. It's hating. It wants to kill. And that's why you find these kill areas with bones all over the place. Wolves don't do that and bears don't do that. And Lucas showed me an area where there was like a pit with branches over top of it. And what it was is where a rogue squats down. And that hole was about six and a half feet deep. That was a big rogue that must have been squatting in there. And what it does is it just pounces out for its food, whether it be a deer or guinea fowl or wild turkey or uh, one of the buffalo uh, calves that, that got loose from the pens or whatever. But... From what I've seen at that place and a couple sites on Vancouver Island, I believe rogues are so visually seeing red, so angry that they got displaced and they, they can't be by their children and grandchildren no more, that just like we humans, because they're humans too, something snaps in their head and they go ape shit crazy. And that's a rogue Sasquatch. So think about... Northern California in the late 60s and you're out skipping through the forest down a trail and you come around the corner face to face with Charles Manson and you didn't have a weapon. Would you want to go up and shake his hand or do you want to turn and get the hell out of there? I think I'd turn and get the heck away from Charles Manson. He was an evil, evil rogue in his day. Yeah, yeah, still. Absolutely. Tom, we're going to wrap up because we're running out of time, but all I want to say is keep bouncing, buddy, because I think you're doing a great job. So well, we're going to have much. you back. Yes, absolutely. So um, yeah, tell everyone to go to Sasquatch Island on Facebook. That's the best way to communicate with me and everything. My emails are on the posts and that, and you'll learn a lot more about Sasquatches. And I want to, I want to, um, you mentioned another place where people can buy tickets. Would you say that one more time? Sasquatchthelegend.com. You just go there. They have their store in Forks, Washington, and we're going to have, he's going to have his first Forks annual Sasquatch Festival, May 28th, 29th this year. And Peggy and I will be performing our Kwakwakiwa, Junakwa, and Bakus regalia on stage. So hopefully I'll see you all out there. Yes, absolutely. Tom, we got a motto for you. Keep bouncing, buddy. Oh, keep bouncing. Thank you very much. And uh, don't forget Thank to send you, me a link. In Bigfoot history, Lewis River Canal near Yale, Washington, 
June 1963. Stan Matson, Vancouver, Washington, tells of seeing a very tall, brown, ape-like creature with long hanging breasts carrying a young one under its left arm. It was either getting a drink of water or catching small fish. He watched it for about 10 minutes. All right, we're back from the break. We have Forrest with us, who is our regular now, thankfully. And Milo is not with us. He's been sick, so he's going to, I don't know how long he's going to be out, but uh, he has trouble with these medications. You know, he did a number of tours in Iraq, so he has uh, health issues from that. But, uh, and our good friend Moran is joining us. So, Tom, shall we uh, jump right in here? Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to thank both of our guests today. Uh, it's a real treat having you guys on. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, if you enjoy the show, let us know. Click the like and subscribe. And if you want to support us, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, we have a link in the description for Patreon. And we have silence. <laughs> right? <laughs> well... I, I guess, Moran, let's, let's go to Moran. You, you always have great questions, so I'm sure you have something in mind. Yeah, well, I've been – I let me start by saying my mother was a voracious reader, and she sort of passed that on to her son. You know, I've been uh, – uh, when I was younger, uh, there was some thought about going to university and studying, taking some field. Uh, but I found the university kind of um, very um, inclusive in its subject matter. When you go into a field and uh, you become specialized in that field and what what have you. But I I, I, I was more interested in other things than that. So I, I I just along my life I've I've looked into a lot of different things. I, I'm uh, read in anthropology, archaeology, paleontology, primatology, and zoology. So you combine all that. So you have a great knowledge base to draw from. So one of the things I got interested in was this field and cryptozoology this these creatures um being one of them uh, as i've gone through in in my later life up to this point um taken a greater interest in and uh i've talked to several people who've had uh encounters and and incidences now i've been monitoring online uh, a lot of channels and comments from a lot of people and in regards to these creatures and will has stated this in the past that our behavior has shifted uh from decades ago or hundreds of years ago we're not out in the wild as much we're not hunting as much animals will respond to that and um in the field that i work in i i see a lot of that now they're they're coming into areas that they normally in the past have not been coming into. Now I've been monitoring the gentleman's channel from the Southern States and these creatures uh, are coming into rural areas now, not staying in the deep wild, but they're coming into rural areas. 
and I did monitor one gentleman's channel that he's an ongoing investigator stated that there's been a number of deaths in regard to what they're referring to as dogmen. Now, I don't pertain that they're any kind of candidate or, or such. I know through anthropological studies that um, like a chimp is a primate. So is a, a, a gorilla. So is a baboon. So you, like Will has stated, you can have various types of the same generic general creature that shows uh, adaptive features for their environments down through time. And I kind of look at nature as almost a schizophrenic kind of being because I've seen it in a wide number of environments that um, uh, you can have a very stable environment for a very long time. Creatures will maintain their, their body type they may grow in size due to uh, breeding um, purposes, but if there's a, some kind of uh, shift in the environment, you can have a quick in, uh, uh, genetic adaptation to that shift that, uh, or very short uh, span time, you can get something completely different. Uh, elephants uh, in Africa are a good example. The hunting of uh, African elephants that's been going on the past decades. They're now having elephants born that don't develop tusks. So the, these uh, dogmen that they're talking about in the South, and I've worked down there, and I was told not to go in certain areas. I may not come back. And I listened to people. And um, so that said, these, it seems that these things are, are breeding up in population and coming into rural areas due to our behavior. All right, I'm going to jump in for just for a real quick question, just a little follow-up. You were told not to go into certain areas. Are you talking about uh, in Canada or somewhere else? I was working down in the States at the time. I was in my mid-late 20s. And I work in a marine field, so I, use, I, I work with uh, a lot of private yachts, super yachts, uh, commercial. So I got in areas that other people don't usually go, um, away from the tourist areas that are heavily policed or, or heavily populated. So I was in areas that, um, like in Louisiana. Um, and I, I got to know some of the locals and they said they had a certain type of behavior and they told me not to go anywhere without anybody local. And some people are very, 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 very suspicious down there of outsiders. So you don't get a lot of information exchange. And um, some of the people don't realize that down there, they're really, really densely foliated areas that you could hide a dinosaur in, nobody would know. So the, I've watched one uh, gentleman's channel, they were out, a local uh, Southern investigator, and they were out in um, their local area, and they were 
uh, walking along talking about the sounds that they were hearing and all of a sudden like they're walking along you could hear birds and and squirrels and and then it just went dead everything just shut up just there was no sound at all and they they uh kept walking along talking didn't click in real right that moment and then they said they smelled something really bad and they got a really bad feeling and they backed out of that area one of them one of the gentlemen became very very nervous and he just, uh, the other gentleman was looking up up the hill and he turned around and his buddy was taken off on him. And um, they said they just got a really bad, bad feeling and they just turned around and got out of there. Okay, so the guy running away who took off, yeah. I mean, he was just, uh, he was spooked to the point. And they said he, they smelled something as well. Yeah. Really bad smell. Yeah, but I know they a said thing it, or two about that. Absolutely. Yeah. They said it, it. They don't think it was like they've been working with Bigfoot, right? And, and they know those creatures. But this is something else, they said. This is something they they just were really afraid of. They couldn't really identify, identify what it was, but they said it, it's, it's not um, Bigfoot or Sasquatch. It's something else. Yeah, yeah, there, I think there are other things out there, um, and they're, they're interesting. Uh, I think the scope is, um, you know, at least at least of, of this channel of us is uh, not that we don't, we don't discount the other ones. Uh, we just, you know, our focus is yeah. primarily on Bigfoot, which is keeps us plenty busy, and there's, you know, it's a huge... Um, <laughs> You know, it's a huge topic with, with a lot of uh, a lot of room for discovery. But I want to I also want to back up for a second because you did mention that Sasquatch is, in your opinion, is moving into more rural areas. And I think that's something that I mean, we've seen that. But also, I think that's something that maybe Forrest can definitely comment on. Right. I can relate to that. Yes. Um you know, oftentimes uh, uh, predators and, uh, uh, of course, human encroachment uh, will cause the movement of animals into other areas. Uh, but I think um, a human encroachment has actually, in a lot of ways, provided for Bigfoot a um, luncheon buffet, so to speak, because of the animals, uh, our garbage, our pets. And uh, you see a lot of these areas where you have a lot of sightings, where you have missing, missing pets, missing animals, and unfortunately, missing people. <clears throat> and um, I, let me apologize, too, for my voice, because uh, Tom and Will know that I, I was up till six this morning in the night air with uh, a mare and baby. So uh, I do apologize. My voice is kind of scratchy and I have to keep clearing my throat. I've got a bit of a sore throat, so I apologize for that. Um, <clears throat> however, back to the subject in hand, um, primates respond just like any other, um, mammal, uh, people do as well. You know, if something is forcing them, uh, or, uh, causing them issues in an area, then, uh, you see them move out of it 
into another di- direction. And um, that, like I say, I think that we have, as humans, have provided them with a reason to move into rural areas. And uh, uh, I had to laugh when he was talking about uh, Louisiana. Now, I've not, not ever worked uh, specifically in Louisiana, but I did work in uh, uh, East Texas as a archaeologist and y'all know I do have a degree in archaeology too so um, as it turned out we had somebody one day and I think I've related this story to y'all but uh, just to uh, emphasize the density of the forest in those areas we had had somebody the day before break into one of our uh, company vehicles and it had been cold the day before and we had our coats and we put them in there uh, while we had uh, had gone to lunch and we all piled into another vehicle and left our coats and uh, we had left our not needing our compasses obviously at the restaurant we left them uh, for the most part in our pockets at least there was three or four of us that did I being one of them <clears throat> and I was the crew chief and I should have known better but uh, anyway to make a long story short the next day we get out in the woods and everything's just fine we're doing transits uh 30 meters uh, apart and sometimes we could see each other sometimes we couldn't and i got lost i got completely turned around and so did uh uh two other individuals uh one individual found the group pretty quick because he heard somebody uh yelling because they got to the end of transit and uh were missing all of us I finally, after realizing that I was going around in circles, I just sat down and, um, you know, would periodically yell out, and they finally found me. But those woods out there, um, you you can't see in them. They have a lot of uh, berry bushes like blackberry and uh, such as that, and it makes it absolutely impossible to get around in there and to be able to see anything. And... Um, and, of course, the ground cover is almost all exclusively pine needles back out there in East Texas with all the piney woods and such. So it's not like you can easily follow your footsteps where you came from or where you've been. So it was a rather frightening experience, actually. I yeah, mean, I, I knew know eventually that, uh, somebody would find me, but, you know, still. <laughs> I know that. I know that oh too well. Uh, I used to work down Central South America, and uh, you were talking about a three-tier canopy. Uh, right. <laughs> and actually, uh, I know what it's like to be afraid in those situations because I, I was young. I didn't know any better. I was, came off a, a boat and the jungle was kind of inviting. You know, you got that uh, sense of exploration in you. <laughs> and a young person probably should know better, but I decided to go wander around in the woods. And uh, shortly thereafter, got myself really, really lost. And then I was lost for three days. And that night, the initial night, I started getting stalked by a jaguar. And I was stalked by a jaguar for three days until I got out of there. So I know what it's like to be prey. And uh, it's not a good feeling. Well, when very, very few people know what it's like to be prey, that those few days taught me what it's like to be prey and and i was praying the water as well because i was working on yachts and 
people drop things overboard and I, uh, I uh, took it upon myself to dive into the water, go down and retrieve some of these articles. And um, I took a spear gun with me because there are sharks in those waters, different types of sharks. And I got this feeling, I got down to the bottom, I got this feeling, I whipped around and here coming at me was a 14-foot tiger shark. And all I had with me was that spear gun and a cinder block. And that spear gun would be like throwing a toothpick at a rhino. And uh, I was going to pick that cinder block up and ram it in its mouth that it came at me. But it circled me three times and then swam off. And the captain of the boat said he'd never seen anybody come up out of the water quite so fast before in his life. Um, so I, I kind of know that feeling. And um, it's, it's not a good feeling. Uh, you ha- uh, um, I, I had to stand there, stand my ground, because predators, if you turn, it re- uh, uh, kicks in their, their predatory instinct. And automatically you become prey and they uh, will come at you. And uh, depending on the predator, um, it could be a very bad situation for you. But um, I've learned from those experiences um, and recommend that even if you run into one of these creatures, um, the best you can do is stand your ground and indicate to them that you're not going to be easy prey. And most, and most predators, they don't want to engage in a, uh, contact where they might be injured because it may mean their death if they're injured or something. So they're very calculative in, uh, assessing, uh, a prey and they'll uh given the um vagaries of the specific species uh they could assess that uh prey um for days before they act on the, on their predatory nature so uh that said um, I, I, I hope that people will take that information and take it to heart because, uh, you're not going to run one of these things. Um, I've watched different predators, um, cover distances in fractions of seconds and, and you're not going to be able to compete with that in any, any way, shape or form. You have to use your brain. That's what our adaptive signature uh, is and you have to use your brain. You can't let the um, fight or flight uh, instinct overrule reason. They teach you that in a lot of the safety courses that I've taken over the years uh, to save your life. You have to you, you have to think. So if you get in a scenario of uh, running into one of these creatures, you have to indicate the, to them that um, it's not going to be easy and. More often than not, you're probably not going to stand a chance, but they're going. To, it's going to make them think twice. Well, that's a good point, um, Moran. It's um, you know when it, when it comes to Bigfoot, they're. I don't know. I, I I think some of them 
are just uh, malevolent, and I think some of them are not. But even the ones that are not, <clears throat> excuse me, are not benevolent. They're, uh, I think they're kind of neutral in between. Forrest, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you, you don't, I don't think you really have two camps. You just got varying dispositions, right? Right. Um, you know, primates are just like humans. They all have different personalities. Um, you can you can find some that are. I don't want to use the word benevolent, but they're more docile. Uh, and then you have others that are more aggressive. Uh, your males most generally are going to be the aggressive uh, of the group, whether I don't care whether it's, uh, you know, gorillas, chimps or um, macaques or even the lower order of uh, monkeys. It's always going to be the male that's going to be the, the more uh, aggressive. But um you can have uh, some females that are aggressive, more aggressive in nature than the, the other females. But um, I think I think he is correct in one assumption that standing your ground is the proper way to handle it because it in with any mammal, uh, including big cats, if you run, you're basically uh, th- that kicks in their their drive to follow you and attack you. Uh, I actually had a, an encounter with a mountain lion when I was doing my field school in Utah, and I came upon it on the trail going back up to camp for lunch, and <clears throat> I don't even remember now the reason why I was late getting out of there and getting back up there, but I was all alone on the, the trail, and I come along, and there's this mountain lion sitting there in the the trail like a house cat and and of course as soon as I appeared it stood up and I had I was lucky enough that day I think that I had a um um jacket on and I think had I not had a jacket on I would have probably been stripping my blouse off or my uh, shirt that I had on at the time and waving it at him but what I did immediately was because we had been told that they did have mountain lions in the area so we had Gone, they'd gone over some basic things that we needed to do. And I unzipped my jacket and immediately grabbed the bottom of it and, and uh, spread it out like I had great big wings. And it was a, a navy blue jacket. So uh, this mountain lion took one look at me like, oh, my God, this, this uh, human just grew in size. And uh, it took off. I was lucky. You know, it could have just as easily... Um, turn the other way and uh, come after me and I'm not so sure that I would have been the brave soul to have stood there until it came right up on me and attacked me but uh, I probably would have been looking for some place to run at that point in time but uh, apes are the same way I mean if you uh, the only difference with apes is if you do direct eye contact that is usually uh, you're inviting them to um, attack you and uh, so the best thing to do is actually to avert your eyes and and or duck your head. And by moving your head downward, it's an act of submission. And usually that will avoid any type of aggression. Um, you know, I've watched other primates in these kind of situations. Sometimes the aggressor will 
run by and and maybe hit or swat the uh the intended victim but that's usually the only thing once the 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 intended victim ducks her head and shows submission it's kind of like uh uh, Indians taking coup, walking, uh, you know, riding by on horseback and just hitting them with their uh, uh, bow. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like taking points. You know, I took coup and I'm I'm going away now. And um, hey. I think it works the same way with primates, too. I want to jump in real quick. Uh, and this is a question for both Moran and, and uh, you, Forrest. You know, talking about predators and specifically you know just talking about the mountain lions and but any other kind of animal that's coming up to prey on you what are your thoughts do you have an opinion or any research on the effectiveness of the air horns that you can buy in your outdoor stores that are uh, considered a deterrent to animal attacks well i i can probably uh answer to that question uh it it really depends on the species or predator and i know one instance uh a friend's son was in uh the rocky mountains mountain biking and um with a friend and his friend had one of those air horns and they came up upon a grizzly and his friend thought be a good idea to get that air horn out and blast it at the bear now bears react in a fight or flight reaction instantly and um it chose to attack them and only because they were on bikes and on a very technical trail uh the bear couldn't get its body bulk around the corners fast enough to get up to them so by very slim margin they got down the mountain and got out of there uh, but that that would really depend on the species of predator if you were on it if it was a cat they're probably a lot more supple in their their, their uh, movement ability and uh, a large cougar and I've seen uh, cougars get up to 300 pounds so that's an animal you're not going to overpower they're one of the most powerful cats on the planet per pound. Um, and they can leap the length of a school bus if need be. Uh, so, uh, and I saw um, footage of cougars just sitting by well-traveled trails waiting. And there's been a number of deaths by cougars out west in Canada on well-traveled trails that never used to have any problems. So that's that's an in, indicative pattern of how animals are readapting to our new behaviors well i think yeah, a lot of your wildlife oh i'm sorry tom uh no no uh, yeah go ahead for us well you knew i lived in alaska for 17 years so i have quite a bit of familiarity mm-hmm. with grizzlies and with uh black bear and i think he's right in one sense of the word uh, i never had to use an air horn but we we had that we always uh, went camping with those and, and with uh, uh, bear spray. And, of course, a lot of people don't realize that a bear spray is useless unless you apply it properly. Um, and um, But grizzlies are a different, <laughs> are a completely different beast than uh, black bear. 
black bear will more readily run from you. Uh, grizzlies, uh, they're, they're less likely to just tuck tail and run. But uh, if you, you're making a lot of noise and, uh, <clears throat> and making a lot of disturbance, most generally they will choose uh, flight over, over fight. Um, they even recommend in hunting situations and in camping situations that you put uh, bells on your legs so that when you're walking that they uh, are immediately alerted to your presence and uh, because you don't want to step over a log and end up stepping on a sleeping bear. Um, and I think the nature of uh, the beast is, too, that like on bicycles, that motion of the and that's almost like fleeing prey. So it just kind of kicks into their instinct to follow immediately. Um, now, he's correct in the assumption that a, uh, a cat would be far more agile in chasing somebody on a bike. And they have many instances of uh, that happening in California, uh, people being attacked uh, by mountain lions on bike. Um, uh, people that are riding uh, of people riding bicycles being attacked by mountain lions. And then we've got the issue with these predators are losing their fear of people because there's so many people going into the woods. There's they're they're having contact with them on a daily, sometimes daily basis all the time. And uh, that they wouldn't have normally. And if we, if we weren't out there. Yeah. I, I got to agree with you. Uh, first. Um, I know that they have, like here, we don't have these issues in Atlantic Canada. Um, on the West Coast, they actually have classes for for uh, young students in regards to behavior and how to deal with these predators um, regularly. So that's that's a, a regional response to uh, an apparent threat um, that it's hard for people here to relate to. Like I've kind of well-traveled, read, well-read, and I, uh, I understand a lot of different issues. So um, it's almost like another cultural area. But to deal with these animals, you have to know, have a good knowledge base in uh, understanding them and know what not to do or, or, or the behaviors, what not to do. So you won't attract their attention. Um, so um, there's been a number of deaths um, up here uh, for reason of sheer ignorance of nature. There's uh, a real big um, gap in understanding between humanity and nature now. People just don't understand nature anymore in a, in a wider sense. Um, so that, that's attributable to that not being aware of your surroundings. You really, really like I'm a trained observer and I'm trained, I've been trained to be hyper aware of my surroundings and that's saved my life in, uh, uh, I don't know how many times, but most people I see. Um, the very narrow focus in their behavior. We're used to getting what we want when we want now in our society, and we live we live in an artificial environment. Those animals are out there uh, to survive, and they'll do whatever they uh, need be 
to make that happen. And if you're in um, area they are and you're not responding to them, they perceive that as a weakness and um, will, in worst case scenario, make a meal out of you. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in real quick. We've got a series of questions from our listeners. We're gonna tackle those in just a moment, uh, but before we move on, I want to ask. So, as far as a mountain lion goes, I would suspect that, and we have a lot of them. I'm I'm in the West Coast as well. We have, uh, I mean, we've actually had one in the city park here about two three weeks ago. I would imagine that the air horns, because those are incredibly loud, would be, if nothing else, a part-time, uh, a momentary deterrent. Obviously, you're not going to give it a blast and run because that's it's game on at that point. What are your thoughts? So, do you think that with a mountain lion, do you think a uh, air horn would be effective? It depends on the situation, but cats usually won't stand their ground if put up a, a really strong defensive uh, posture. Um, they're an am- ambush predator and they rely on that. Once they, um, they, they'll come up and jump on you and, and bite into your neck and they won't let go. But if you put up a very strong facial um, aggressive posture, it, it, it um, diffuses a situation that uh, they don't have the advantage anymore and yeah, that's not worth not worth the the attempt to get injured yeah and that's a real good point that they are uh they oftentimes and cats will do this they'll attack from a high place uh the mountain lions so if you're if you're hiking you really want to be aware of the trees because that's where the cats yeah. are and you also want to be aware of overhangs and bluffs because they're going to be up there as well and it happens in a nanosecond yeah, bears uh, are a different situation altogether they're very yes. pugnacious and it doesn't matter if you're facing them it's better to face them than not and stand your ground but once you turn you you instantly become that prey source yes these, uh, these other predators i would assume would be the same thing um if you if you're not aware of your surroundings if you're oblivious to what's going on around you you're you're in a weakened, a very weakened position, putting putting yourself in a very weakened position, uh, and they will take advantage of that. Yeah, you want to maintain situational awareness, especially with uh, this creature. And and I'll just real quick, I'll also I'm going to throw in that another excellent, and I, I've, the statistics I've read is actually it's more effective by almost 90%, about 88% more effective than firearms is the uh, bear spray. It's got to be bear spray, not pepper spray, but bear spray for, uh, because both for cats and and bears and also coyotes and wolves, uh, because it makes a loud noise, it covers a large area, and you don't have the concern of somebody firing wildly with a you know, for 45 or something and ha- and they missed the mark and maybe hit somebody else, you know, because that, that, that round will travel a great distance. Those, those sprays are very uh, directional. Uh, um, well, not they're, they're focused on a, a directional stream, but if you have a wind, strong wind, you have to take yeah, yeah, yeah. it into, into account. Uh, but for, 
instance, just to retouch on what I said, is that I, I, I guided here in Nova Scotia, I've guided people into the into the back woods. And I was guiding a couple of women and uh, I was awake late at night and I heard a pack of coyotes and they were coming toward the camp. I, I knew what was going to happen if I didn't react. So I got up and I went into the bush and confronted and it was a pack of four or five. And uh, I had a light and I saw all these eyes. So I just turned the light off and uh, I was an upright, a larger predator and I bellowed at them. And all I saw were, were eyes disappearing into the bush. So I knew they would have come into the camp and investigated and possibly threatened those women. So I had to do something. Uh, so my response was a very aggressive one. I wouldn't recommend people try that uh, if you don't understand the animal. But I, I got a good understanding of, of animals. And uh, so I, I, I took the proper measures in that situation. And it really depends on the situation. Yeah, it does. Shotgun works good in that situation as well because you can cover it, a lot Yeah, of that would work now. too. <laughs> With double odd buck. Okay, guys, I'm going to jump in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we have uh, a bunch of questions from our listeners. And real quick, I just want to say thank you, folks, for writing your questions in because they keep the topic alive. Um, and we we don't respond back in writing when you when you write your questions in. I think somebody some people expect that, <clears throat> but we we put your questions on the air so that everybody can benefit from the response. Okay, so David wants to know um, this this is in regards now back to Bigfoot. How would they lose heat? if they're unable to sweat and I don't know if we have the answer to that, but, or could they, why some witnesses report they smell bad. Uh, is it, are they sweating into their fur or hair? And I'm just going to throw it out. I think I'm going to toss this one to, I think I'm going to toss it to forest first and we'll just kind of do a round table on this. Well, I don't know that anybody's ever done a study on, uh, sweating in um, Bigfoot, <laughs> but um, I would assume that they are able to sweat just like uh, uh, all of us are. Uh, primates, to a certain degree, uh, uh, sweat less than, than us. We have uh, uh, sweat glands on in particular parts of our body, and we also, uh, primates uh, do as well. They also have um, scent glands, and uh, chimpanzees, uh, macaques, gorillas, uh, they emit a very pungent and sometimes, to some people, a very awful smell. Um, If you're used to it, it's not something that necessarily bothers you, but uh, people that aren't used to it find it, uh, um, they don't like it. So they do have scent glands, and they use those scent glands uh, when chimpanzees and when gorillas get angry. Um, they exude those uh, hormones, uh, and the scent permeates the air, and it will tell the it alerts the um, the aggressor's victim that um, they have a. Situ, 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 situation, excuse me, 
situation occurring, and that will usually, um, the victim then can respond to it either in an aggressive manner or um, be submissive. Most generally, it's a submissive posture because, like we've discussed before, primates are just like other animals. They don't really want to get into a um, battle situation because battle, you know, you get into a battle situation and animals are hurt and uh, torn up, there's no, they're, they're probably going to go off someplace and die. And they're in usually uh, these tropical areas where a bacteria just thrives in abundance. And that's going to complicate the uh, injuries and most generally will end up in death. Uh, I've, I've seen macaques get a very simple um, bite or a cut and end up dead within a week because of the bacterial infection that has um, developed. And that's a sad situation. So they avoid uh, a lot of conflict in that regard. Um, I'll probably add to that, Forrest, that um, human beings, we, we do sweat, but we also produce oils for our skin. And bacteria do feed on that oil. Uh, and dead tissue on, on our skin. It's not usually a problem. Um, but hey. I belong to Outward Bound Adventure Group. And we come back and we've gone into pubs and people get up from tables sometimes and move away from us. Hey guys, let me <laughs> let me jump in here a second. Okay, that was a two-part question for one thing. Um, and Forrest is correct. You know, they do probably sweat on as far as sweating into their fur. Here's a test I'm going to put to everybody. Um, we know from, you know, historical reports, you know, John Green noted it specifically in one of his books that out of, I think it was seven or ten witnesses, maybe only one would report a smell. And I can tell you, having stood in less than 20 feet from these creatures, there was no smell. So if they were sweating into their fur or if it was, you know, bacteria or whatever, this would be more of a constant, but it's not. So it strongly suggests it's scent glands rather than sweating into their fur. Yeah, yeah I think that's, that's exactly correct because uh, primates are the same way. You don't. Uh, the unfortunate thing is the primates that I've been in uh, contact with have been in, in captive situations, so uh, where they would probably smell more than uh, animals that were actually out in the wild. And, um, but it's, it's a known fact that they exude, uh, they do exude, uh, from their scent glands and, um, and of course, hormonal, uh, scents when, uh, they're, the females are in estrus. And so you've got, you know, combination factors, but I, I hear that continually too. And then they say that in the aggressive, when they're in aggressive states, uh, just like I told you about the chimpanzees and gorillas, then that's when you really smell them. That's and I think that's it's a natural reaction from the body to start uh, releasing these scents. That's something I was going to ask you too. That's and that's something my belief is also from other information I've gotten is that during states of excitement is when they exude that smell, and, and also where typically on primates are those scent glands. Uh, under the arms and um, they're 
and the groin area and the under the arms. And I do believe uh, they have the chimpanzees have one in their um, in their chest area as well. I haven't made a study on scent glands. I'm sorry. I, I was just curious. I mean, I I wondered if they had anything in their you know in their arms or you know near their hands maybe for marking. Would they mark an area? Let's say with their scent. Well, hmm. I've never seen any specific, even in uh, videos and such of them marking uh, areas. I would imagine that uh, you know urine. Uh, placing urine in specific areas would be a uh, way of marking as well, and uh, males do do that. They will back up and spray trees, and uh, uh, I think that's why they react when a lot of times when you've got these researchers that go out, and then they talk about that they urinated on a tree, and then it uh, gets the male Bigfoot in that area, upset because they they view that as us marking our territory right and we have that and like maybe in the case, marking their territory <laughs> right like in the case of carol we've had on a couple times um the creatures there would actually be able to locate her because they would urinate on the door handle and the door of the car she was driving oh my uh, could i throw something in there well yeah yeah, I saw a study saying that, uh, and this could pertain to uh, young men courting women, humans as well, that uh, when men sweat, there's a certain um, element in our sweat that um, uh, affect certain um, senses in a woman's nasal capacity. That, it's pheromones. Um, yeah, that will... Um, possibly induce uh, a more appealing they find that appealing for some reason I would assume the natural flow of things um, so uh, we in a lesser sense do that as well yeah all hang on, hang on Ron. You're, you're, you're telling all the young guys out there they don't need to use uh, deodorant <laughs> when they go out on a date well I'm not saying that <laughs> but oh, please don't. yeah I did see a study that basically said that, that there are certain sensors in a woman's nasal passages that are sensitive to pheromones put off by a male's sweat. Back to the days when men drenched themselves in cologne. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd only known that years ago. <laughs> All right, I'm going to, okay, we're going to move on here. Uh, good, good time to do that. This is from from Fred Sieber, and he's a uh, school teacher in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Okinawa. And Fred, your students have excellent questions. So these are three very good ones. Question number one, and I'm going to uh, start with Will on this. Uh, does anyone know the population of Sasquatch in North America? Two, what area in North America has the largest population of Sasquatch and then number three does anyone have an estimate on the population of Sasquatch like creatures worldwide those good questions the first one now I'm going on what I was told through my sources um, not a specific number but the figure was six figures for the continent of North America 
<clears throat> now, I don't know if that's low end, high end, or where that was all I was given. Um, and what was the second question, Tom? Okay, so the second one is what area in North America, <clears throat> excuse me, in North oh. America has the largest population? You know, there are people, especially in Facebook, who like to make these maps and put them out there, you know, and some claim that, you know, in the eastern part of the U.S. or the southeastern part of the U.S., <clears throat> but I would assume, you know, based on information I get, you know, there are creatures all over the place, but when... You know, settlers came into North America. They moved west, and a lot of a lot of things moved west with that expansion. Uh, and, and it looks like these creatures did as well. So the Northwest up through Alaska would probably have the largest population, although there do seem to be plenty elsewhere. And, okay. And worldwide, and, there's yeah. I I, I saw uh, density maps indicating the, the, the majority are uh, uh, through the Rocky Mountain Range, West Coast area. Right. And uh, Appalachian uh, area down through the eastern uh, U.S. and uh, lesser amounts, not saying that they're very, very few, but um, uh, lesser amounts um, in, in through the central part of the continent. Because that's plains area, but you open know, area. That that's an indicator these people really don't know what they're talking about. Because we get lots of reports from those locations, and there's a lot more creatures there than people would assume, especially Arizona. Yeah, well, I didn't say that there are none. Yeah, oh no, the, so. but the numbers are higher than people think. So, without a comprehensive no. study, there's no way of really yeah. knowing a lot of it's speculation. Yeah, and up here in Canada. The majority of our population is along the U.S. border. Right. The, so there the are a great, lot great extent there. of There's a lot of uninhabited area up here in Canada. Now, I, I've talked to people about uh, the possibility of finding one of these things. I've gotten in very heated discussions with my son's grandmother's husband about this. And, you know, he thinks that te technology should have found something by now if they did exist. And, and I, I know that technology isn't a cure-all for everything. Uh, it takes millions of dollars to, for a satellite to say, to, to look at something. And, and why are they going to spend that money for something that doesn't to, in their opinion, exists. Right, they wouldn't. Doesn't do make it. sense. And no, and uh, infrared um, goggles or whatever, or cameras. Uh, if they're in, like any other animal that I've uh, seen, they've now learned that they're sensitive to infrared light. So they probably see infrared light just as well as, as a deer or a raccoon or any other animal. No, it's a really good point. And I, I would, I, we get that same argument all the time. Um, I, I, I got a family member who, who argues that, and I'm like, well, okay. So you're arguing, you're trying to prove a negative for, for starters, say they don't exist and you have no evidence other than opinion and, you know, circumstantial evidence. But actually, technology has found these things and they have been photographed and, and um, just because I, I would say that just because academia hasn't lobbed onto this and published something doesn't mean that they don't exist because they, they certainly yeah, I, they do. I think and, that that's the big uh, uh, tripping point is that people is. rely too much on academia to accept what 
could possibly be. I know that the first um, zoologist that saw a platypus, he, he, he tried cutting it apart to find stitching. Yeah. Because he couldn't, uh, his brain could not uh, comprehend what he, his eyes were showing him. Right, right. Very good point. Forrest, what are your thoughts on this? On the population of Bigfoot? Well, no, on the um, the fact that people one of the one of the arguments is that they don't exist because they haven't been properly documented or discovered using technology. And I, I think that's not true that they have. And also, just like Moran said, uh, the big tripping point is the fact that academia hasn't globbed onto this and come out and said, yes, they exist. Well, I, I don't even understand academia anymore. Um, to be honest with you, I, um, there've been plenty of photographs, movies. I mean, the Patterson film, they say next to the Zapruder film, it's been the most analyzed film in history and they've never been able to disprove it. Um, but nobody will accept it as a complete fact. There are a few anthropologists out there that will stick their neck out. Jeff Meldrum is one. Um, and you can't help but just applaud them for that, in fact, because uh, he stuck his neck out and he studied, uh, you know, I think his specific, uh, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his specific field is uh, uh, motion and, uh, and the footprints that he has has uh he has traced the movement of one particular bigfoot if i remember correctly uh throughout washington and possibly into canada if i remember correctly on that one um but i mean there's academia that actually believe in this but the ones that that do are just absolutely uh ridiculed by others and I, I don't understand it i mean it's beyond my comprehension why they they want to be that way why can they not accept that there is a primate out there other than man that's bipedal and you know you and i talked about that one that they found in tanzania that uh, they're now thinking that bipedalism actually developed a lot sooner than what uh, uh we've always thought you know and um several million years earlier but you sure don't see that particular article displayed in uh, uh, schools and and all over the internet. You know, uh, I had um, to. I mean, I had to hunt to find it, and for, I try to us? keep up on my reading. Of course, I, I, I think I, I I think I can comment on that. Uh, I saw a, uh, a report on two chaps that they they. they forward a, a um, bogus study on something uh, to the uh, upper echelons of the academic uh, system. And at every step, uh, it was uh, forwarded, accepted, and forwarded right up to the top chain of that system. And they, they, when it got to the very top, they said, hold it, guys. All this is bogus. So, so kind of demonstrating that uh, that academic system was um, not interested in discovery, but it's just a system of acceptance in that field. Uh, and they, I, I actually um, saw that 
it was, it, it was poking holes in the peer review system, which yeah, the peer review system is is critical. It's very important, but actually, it uh, they were just pointing out how stagnant that, yeah. like you said, that system has become over time, and uh, it's just you know you're you're supporting what already exists, um, and and so people are very dogmatic. Very quick, we're going to move on yeah. to the next question here, but very quick. The response that I have, and I've talked to Will about this, when people say, well, they don't exist, is, well, what are you doing tonight? Because I know where they are. Yeah. I can take you there, and you'll have a different uh, outlook uh, after we after we get back. So, all right, um, real quick, Will, um, 10 seconds, well, as long as you want, I guess. Uh, <laughs> does anyone have an estimate? This is back to Fred his class. Does anybody have an estimate on the population of Sasquatch-like creatures worldwide? No idea. Okay, very good. Um, and, and, and agreed, you know, we can only, we have a lot of good information, obviously, from the United States and from Canada. And you know, Australia. North America. And you took the words out of my mouth, Australia, yes. Um, I will say this, talking about Canada real quick if in order to do population estimates you need two things you need a citer and a citee so Canada is probably the least human population has the lowest population density in in the world I don't know would you agree with that Moran yeah we've got the second largest land mass uh, on the planet other than Russia and um by population, it, it were it, it isn't even worth talking about because the northern there's there's Inuit and Indian uh, communities up through the upper part of um, northern Canada, but in <clears throat> they're very uh, isolated areas. Uh, so there's a a lot, and people have a real hard time uh, conceptualizing the the huge vastness of the North American continent. It's a really hard thing to wrap your brain around when you start looking at it. I mean, Nova Scotia here is a very small province, but if you uh, drive up like uh, on our highway, 103 from uh, where I'm at, Lunenburg County to Halifax, and you look either side of the road, um, and then compare that to like a, uh, a province like Quebec or Saskatchewan or Alberta, the landmass is so many m- more times vast. So why wouldn't uh, something be in there that we have not seen? I kind of uh, um, attribute that to a very narrow uh, um, um, thought process. Not yeah, exactly. Being able to conceptualize that. Well, uh, one I got to say, I, Canada is stunningly beautiful. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's just got that that uh, low population density. Just there's no place in the world like it. But uh, there's one point for us made um, about um, uh, bipedalism now being uh, seen like millions of years before. I was just reading an article. I think I'm going to mention it to Will before. They've discovered a creature called Denuvius gorgonopsi, uh, which was actually discovered in clay layers in Bavaria, Germany, uh, indicating um, 
a density of primates that had a, and, and they, they sh their their skeletal remains show a bipedal adaptation, which indicates that bipedalism was and, and this is at tw 12 million years, many millions of years before uh, the, the the oldest um, hominin other than that uh, up to that time discovered so the uh, bipedalism is exceptionally old and uh in europe so they're not even sure where where bipedalism started europe asia africa um so uh, what my thinking is that uh, uh, the landmass uh, up in alaska land bridge may have formed many times why not a diversion uh of population in either direction and these things may be a descended species from them so it, it's it's just a thought i'm not saying it's what is or possibly a possible scenario it's just a thought process i'm going through there's no indicative um uh, archaeological uh, remains to show that but it's just an assump uh, assumption on my part yeah, no, that's a, that's, a, that's a real good point. And I will say, as far as bipedalism goes, um, I've worked in the past. I've had a couple of bosses that I swear walked around scratching their armpits and dragging their knuckles on the ground. So <laughs> you never know. <laughs> there could still be some out there, uh, some some uh, latent. Uh, anyway. I, I'd thought about it for a long time when I asked Renee to hint repeatedly about the behavior and, and it just didn't make sense to me you know knowing that area pretty well and, and going to that location um, from the direction that Patterson and Gimlin were coming and people say I, I, my question was well why didn't the Sasquatch leave it would have obviously heard the horses coming uh, and people say things like well it's by a creek it would be noisy yada 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 that's not true at all if anybody's been to that part of Northern California in October uh, they would know that the film site is the creek. The overall creek is about 13 miles long from the headwaters to the mouth and the Klamath river. And the film site's about seven miles from the mouth up to where the film site is. And it's not a, not a big creek. And in, in the part when it, you get down by the uh, Klamath, it's a decent sized Creek there, but, uh, you get up that far, uh, upstream and especially by late October, that area gets really hot throughout the summer. And most of the water sources get pretty scarce. And where the film site is, there's not much water. So there wouldn't be a lot of noise from it. And, and it certainly would have heard the horses coming. So my question was, uh, again, having heard the horses coming, why didn't it simply move off into the brush? It waited there in the open. It could have turned to its left, disappeared in a matter of a couple seconds. My second sighting was just like that. And the creature didn't hear my car because it was coming around a corner and um, the Washuga River at that location is fairly noisy. So it probably did not hear the car. When it did see it, it took two steps and was gone. Um, yeah, that always always bothered me because, like, I got a book through a book club in, when I was in elementary school and saw the head up in the corner uh, flip. Every page had a little picture of Patty and movement as you flip them through. And something about that always bothered me. Why is she walking down 
the whole uh, bed of the river when she could have, like you said, just taken an immediate left and disappeared in a couple of seconds up through the bush. Yeah, so it did. It didn't. It never make made any, sense to me. It didn't make any sense. And then when it walked away, and it wasn't in any particular hurry, it turned back to look as if to make sure they were still there. Very odd. So, and the fact that there was, and, and it was more after I talked to Bob Gimlin, uh, and I don't remember what conversation, but we we had a number of phone conversations, and I asked him. I said, "Well, you know, why didn't you guys follow the creature?" And he was very quick in his response. He said, because we didn't know where the other two were. And everybody seemed to gloss over the fact that there were actually three creatures there. Now, the other two were not seen that day. But when the loggers first found the tracks in August, there were three sets of them. And the Patterson uh, Sasquatch was actually the smallest of the three prints. So the question, and, and these guys knew because they talked to Al, or at least Patterson had talked to Al Hodgson, who was the connecting piece in that whole area. You know, whenever something happened, they would inevitably people would go to Willow Creek and talk to Al Hodgson because he ran the five and dime store, owned it. And when somebody had something to say, they saw something, Al would be the guy they'd tell. So he's the one that got green and Hinden down there. Uh, the tracks weren't really much when they got there because it rained. So, but they knew there were three sets, and when Green and Hendon left, Al called uh, Patterson's house, talked to Mrs. Patterson because Patterson and Gimlin were in the uh, Mount St. Helens area. So when they came back, and there were construction workers, they were in between jobs, so they put all their stuff together and raced down there to see what they could get. And they were there three weeks, and uh, I mean, it just it didn't it didn't add up. Uh, you know, some of the explanations that people have tried to give. So I thought to myself, knowing the behavior of these creatures most often, is that I, I would bet it was trying to lure them into an ambush where the other two were located. In fact, um, Bob Titmus actually went there 10 days later after the, the filming. And he followed the tracks, and the creature didn't go that far when it went out of sight. It went up on a knoll that was covered with brush, and had a good vantage point and watched them apparently for some time. So it just all the indicators to me, and, and I go back to my military training, <laughs> and it's the kind of thing I would have done if I were going to ambush somebody. Yeah, and uh, all these reports I hear people going missing, no noise, and missing in seconds. Um, and these things are um, probably like a cougar, ambush predators. They can snap your neck, um, and it's all over. No noise. Right. Quick. No no big fight, no noise. Um, I work with wood, so I know the uh, – and I've seen some of the um, tree breaks online that uh, people have been putting posting. Right. And uh, the twisting force on a four-inch, three, four-inch tree was probably in around – 800 to 1,000 pounds to, to twist it if it's new growth. Mm -hmm. um, so you're talking about something with the strength of a small excavator. Yeah, we, we've often wondered that. I mean, I'm, I'm actually the first one who found those breaks and, and <clears> identified <throat> what they were back in, in 1991. And it's incredible <clears throat> when you see that. You know, you're out in the middle of nowhere, uh, not anywhere near where people are. 
And the fact uh, depending we, on on depending on the species of wood, right? Um, yeah, because sometimes they break, sometimes have, they twist them. Yeah, uh, fir, uh, hardwoods. Um, hardwoods going to have a, a greater uh, shearing force, twisting force, than softwood. Right. Um, and that will go up exponentially as the tree gets thicker, mm-hmm. of course. But a three to four inch tree would probably have a shearing force like that of about 800 to 1,000 pounds to twist it to that um, degree, right. what I've seen. Right. Um, I work with keels and stuff, so I know what a thousand pounds is. Oh. And I've seen the um, strength wood. Wood is uh, the strongest material you can get, other than steel, um, but it's much. It can be you know much lighter with um, comparative strength uh, comparisons. Yeah, you're talking around 800 so for a three to four inch tree diameter uh, shearing force, twisting force. You're talking around 800 to 1,000 pounds. Are you talking about the breaking strength, the the psi, or uh, as you like um, the fibers of the wood twisting? Takes a greater amount of force than a sh- than let's say a shearing force or, or just bending over, snapping it. So yeah, twist those imagine. fibers takes on a, a, an exceptionally greater uh, shearing force to do that than you otherwise would just snapping it over. Uh, and the two combined, um, but the, the the just the twisting force alone to to if we were talking about hardwood. Uh, it's I, I would give a good estimate uh, between eight and a thousand pounds to do that to have that th- a three to four inch uh, tree to, to twist that 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 takes an incredible amount of force for yeah, that tree. Yeah. So you're talking. Well, we. <clears throat> no, I, I I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say that's a question that Will and I have had for a long time. Is We'd love to get a uh, mechanical engineer or somebody, because uh, I know they have equipment out there for testing the breaking strength of various materials. So, you, like a, maybe a raw materials engineer, where you yeah. snap and uh, you know you got a you, know, you got a digital or analog meter that tells you what the uh, force involved was. Yeah, um, I, I do a lot of work on marine vessels, so I've got a I good know you do rough estimate of. Um, those kinds of forces. I'm not right. Uh, uh, it would take a mechanical engineer to do uh, um, derive a specific force. Yeah. Um, but it, we're talking about a creature that's twice the size of a gr- African lowland gorilla, with probably more of the strength. And you're talking Hi, about this something. Is Kay. 
if you're a friend or acquaintance, please leave your <laughs> name and number at the sound of the tone. And I'll be happy explain. to call you back just as soon as I'm available. <laughs> well, if we lost trying to get forced. Yeah, we lost her. <laughs> trying to get her back. Apparently, you went to her voicemail. I am alive and well, and I don't need funeral arrangements. I also don't need any insurance. I have all the insurance I need, and I'm getting tired of having to tell y'all no or having to this hang up golden. on you. So I'm giving you the option. You can just hang up now. Thank you, and you have a happy horsey day. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, I guess it just didn't go through. <laughs> okay, well, uh, to finish my thought, yeah, you're gonna you're you're looking at something with the 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 uh, power of a, a small excavator. If yeah. you've seen them in people's yards, oh yeah. Um, oh, so to grab a human's head and twist it around, forget it. Not even worth yeah. talking about. Yeah, it's jump change. Absolutely. Well, listen, um, I think we've kind of come to the end here. We've answered a lot of good questions. And, Moran, I can't thank you enough. Uh, Very special guest. We really, uh, it's a treat having you on, and we really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day to to be one of our guests. And and for us as well, but you lost (laughs) it. Thanks, Moran. We appreciate it. And, uh, folks, we're out of time. Stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, near Ridgefield, Washington, early July 1963, Mr. and Mrs. Martin Henrich, Portland, fishing on Lewis River, saw what they assumed was a tree trunk near the bank suddenly walk into a thicket. It was beige in color and bigger than a human. Mrs. Henrich told her story to the Oregon Journal, and as a result, Jim Arian, son of Charles Arian, who had a farm nearby, went looking for tracks. He found 16-inch prints leading in and out of the river on the south bank near the railway bridge. I saw some of these when they were several weeks old and made a cast. Welcome. This is a five-story collection being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. The Creature from the Avalanche. What did Tony Woolridge see and photograph standing in the melting snow on a Himalayan mountainside? Was it, at last, a yeti? Woolridge himself thinks so. He told his story to David Helton, who reports herein, and showed his pictures to two experts, who deliver their contrasting judgments. BBC Wildlife Magazine, September 1986. When in early March of this year, Tony Woolridge first saw fresh animal tracks on the slopes of the snow on either side of him, the thought of a yeti did briefly cross his mind, but only as a funny idea. He was, of course, in the same general part of the western Himalayas where, in 1937, H.W. Tillman followed a set of large, ape-like footprints for more than a mile, and where, in 1976, Peter Boardman and Joe Tasker 
emerged from their tent on a morning after a night disturbed by unidentifiable low growls to discover that whatever the thing was that had kept them awake, it had apparently, and this may have been what the growling was about, scoffed thirty-six Mars bars, complete with wrappers, before wandering off ahead of a wake of tracks very much, like the ones Tillman had found. Other mountaineers had also had food go missing in this neighborhood, and Woolridge, who was the first person to have passed through this valley since the autumn snows, was vaguely aware of such stories. Nevertheless, if there is anything that always happens to someone else, it is an encounter with a legendary animal, and after a quick smile at the Yeti idea, Woolridge forgot it. There are lots of interesting sights to be seen in these mountains, and the last thing you need to do up here, especially if you are alone, is to fantasize. Unlike most Westerners who come to the Himalayas, Woolridge was not a trekker, or a tourist, or a climber. He was there as a charity fundraiser. In ordinary life, he is a physicist who does research and development for the CEGB in Manchester, United Kingdom, and he has been on walking and climbing trips to the Alps and the Andes, but on this occasion he was on a 200-mile sponsored solo run for an organization called Tradecraft, which promotes trade, intermediate technology, and fair play and conditions in third-world countries, including India. He was staying mainly in the 1,800-meter-high town of Joshamath, northeast of Delhi, and not far from the Tibetan and Nepalese borders, and was ranging out from there in different directions through the high valleys, over a day or two or three days. Each day he would set himself a goal, and try to run to it in time to run back either to Joshamath or to another outlying base before nightfall. It was eleven o'clock on the morning of the fifth day out when he saw the footprints. He had run from Govingat, the village north of Joshamath, to a couple of empty bungalows known as Ganjaria, and was now trying to reach the closed end of the highest valley he had gone through so far, about 4,000 meters. At 3,300 meters he saw the footprints, and was struck by their clarity, smiled at the idea of a yeti, and then wondered what really might have left them. I thought it was probably some sort of large langur monkey, because there were a lot of them about, lower down, between Govindgat and Ganjaria, there were a lot of colonies of them, and I do remember reassuring myself that it didn't look like a big cat. Snow leopards are the only thing I had been told were in the area. But, of course, a person could spend a good part of his life actively searching for and never even glimpsing a snow leopard. Peter Mathiasen wrote a very good book, Snow Leopard about his and George Schaller's Himalayan snow leopard expedition, during which, almost incidentally, they failed to get a single reliable sighting. To be afraid of an attack by a snow leopard, even granting that you could believe that such an animal would ever consider tangling with a man, would be impossible. If only because anybody who was ever killed by one would almost certainly go straight to paradise. A bear? 
I was under the impression that there weren't any bears around here. Anyway, there weren't any claws in the prints. He had also seen a wildlife notice earlier. The whole region is a national park, and it hadn't mentioned bears. In fact, there probably are bears in the area. Asian black bears are reckoned to range throughout the Himalayas, and brown bears are also occasionally reported. But the footprints did not look like a bear's, and that was that. They did not have paw-like symmetry. He could tell that much, even though he did not stand around for a long time gazing at them. He considered a few more possibilities, but nothing seemed quite right. From a medium distance, he took a couple of pictures. I had a long way to go to get up to where I had to get back down that day, so I didn't hang about too long. My main concern was with the instability of the snow, because it was so warm that day, and the surface was rapidly getting softer. I realized that the longer I left it, the harder work it was going to be. The next thing that happened, as he half ran, half plodded onward through the wet snow, was that a bird of prey with a six-foot wingspan came in very low and took a particular interest in him. Woolridge is not a naturalist and had no idea what kind of bird it was, although, having looked at a field guide since then, he thinks it might have been a griffin vulture. But what had begun as a fascinating close look at a large specimen of mountain avifauna gradually changed character as the bird continued to spiral down at him. I thought, does it think I'm injured or something? I was obviously going very slowly over the open slopes, and although I had an ice axe with me, I just couldn't afford to take the risk that it might harm me in some way. So finally I shouted at it, and fortunately it disappeared off to the other side of the hillside. If it seems odd that anyone, naturalist or not, could actually expect that a vulture would harm a human, they are big creatures, and so are we. And it takes an animal the size of a tiger to prey on us. Remember that Woolridge had also had a long thought about snow leopards, even though he knew how rare they are, and then remembered that he was all alone up here. Anything that happened to prevent him from returning on time to base, a broken bone, for example, could at the very least occasion an expensive search party, and that, at the very least, could prevent the whole reason for his Himalayan run. As for the most that could happen, that was just about anything that could be imagined. This was not unreasonable fear. It was an extremely mind-concentrating sort of responsibility. Then, a little further on, it was about noon by now, he heard a crash, and what he describes as a long rumbling. My first reaction was that an awful avalanche somewhere, and then I thought, no, it can't be, because nowhere around could I see any sign of any snow movement. Maybe I was trying to rationalize it to myself, I don't know. I put it down to soldiers in the valley dynamiting for roads. He pressed on up the slope, which seemed suddenly to get much steeper. It was also as the sun was shining on it, getting warmer and making Woolridge very nervous. 
and then, sure enough, stretching across his path was the sweep of debris of a freshly fallen avalanche. I think now, with hindsight, that this was the noise I heard. I went across the next fifty yards or so to get to another spot where the slope evened out so I could get a good view of it and try to work out where it started, what had started it, and what the risks were of something else happening. The thing that really caught my eye was this great big smooth slide in the snow, as if some pretty heavy rock had slid down it. But there was no rock. Where the rock should have been, or where signs that the rock had bounced away should have been, there was nothing, except tracks leading away right from the base of the snow slide across the slope behind a little shrub and beyond it. And right behind the shrub was a shape that couldn't have been a rock. In an unpublished written account of the incident, Woolridge describes this shape as a dark, hairy creature, perhaps up to two meters in height, standing erect on two legs. It had a squarish head and long, powerfully built torso. In talking about it, he also mentions knee-length arms with brown hair on them. Edward W. Cronin, in his book, Erun, The Natural History of the World's Deepest Valley, compiles all of the remarkably consistent recent eyewitness accounts of the Yeti into this description. Its body is stocky, ape-like in shape, with a distinctly human quality to it, in contrast to that of a bear. It stands five and a half to six feet tall and is covered with short, coarse hair reddish-brown to black in color, sometimes with white patches on the chest. The hair is the longest on the shoulders. The face is hairless and rather flat. The jaw is robust. The teeth are quite large, though fangs are not present, and the mouth is wide. The shape of the head is conical, with a pointed crown. The arms are long, reaching almost to the knees. The shoulders are heavy and hunched. There is no tail." Except for the shape of the head, and it may only have looked flat because it was lowered as the animal peered down the slope, Woolridge's description is a good match for Cronin's composite, something that Woolridge was unaware of before he took off for a run through the Himalayas. He had never thought much about yetis, one way or the other, and if pressed would probably have opted for skepticism. I remember how quickly I had to revise my own beliefs. I had to go from the point where I thought, well, a lot of people have been saying there are these strange footprints and there's got to be some explanation for them, the level at which I knew about these things, to thinking, well, the Yeti must exist because the creature can't be anything else that I know of. It's not a human being, and it's not like any other animal that I've ever heard of. What else can it be? It's a tremendous feeling that having all your doubts and your opinions so shaken into line. Unlike many people who see or claim to see unrecorded by science creatures, even unlike many people who have adventured to wherever they are for the specific purpose of finding and photographing them, Woolridge happened to have both a camera with him and the presence of mind to raise it and snapped the shutter. The focus was right 
and the lens cap was off. In fact, it was a camera with an automatic focus and a lens cap shutter lock, something that ought to be attached by handcuff to every member of the International Society of Cryptozoology. The only problem was the Yeti was standing about 150 meters away on the other side of a non-negotiable avalanche slide. And one thing that Woolrich didn't have with him was a telephoto lens. He had 35 millimeter. The sun was behind the animal. When the film was eventually developed, the image was a silhouette about two meters high. I took a couple of quick photographs because I was certain that whatever it was wasn't going to hang around for very long. But it was still there. So I moved up and got as close as I safely could on the snow. I picked out a spot where some rocks were sticking out, and I was on reasonably solid ground, and I started taking some more photographs. And the longer I was there, the more I felt convinced that the animal was in no hurry at all to move off. It was remarkably stationary. It showed virtually no sign of movement. So I studied it as far as I could and took the best photographs I could, mostly from this rocky area. Then I went back down again to where I had taken the first few and took some more from there. He took a roll of color film and loaded another. The animal remained still. The only sign of movement I saw was I saw the bush vibrate on one occasion, and when I moved lower down I got the impression, no more than that, that it changed its posture and was looking around the other side of the shrub. And you get that impression, too, from the negatives. Woolridge's eyes, there being two of them with fairly high resolution, were doing a better job than the camera. I could get the three-dimensional effect. He could see the brown arms clearly, and what was most clear, I think, were the features of the head. The fact that it was so square, for one thing. One other thing that still puzzles me is why it didn't seem to be looking directly at me. It was looking down the slope. I was convinced, the more I looked at it, that it thought its best chance. Well, I don't know how it thought it could have concealed by instinct, maybe, in order to conceal itself, it freezes. On the other hand, maybe a snow-wise animal that has just been nearly killed in an avalanche knows how to keep another pile of snow from crashing down on it. Maybe it knows to go on to the nearest bush, hang on and stay still until the snow refreezes. Maybe it was wishing that the human over there wouldn't keep jumping around and taking pictures. Or maybe not. All speculations welcome. About 45 minutes passed. The sky began to darken, and it started to snow. Woolridge admits that all things being equal, he might have considered trying the rather dangerous crossing of the avalanche debris and continuing for a little while with his run. He hadn't reached the day's goal, Hemkund, at the valley's cul-de-sac. But that would have meant recrossing the debris later, and the snow would have been even more unstable, and it also would have meant... 
and this was the factor that went furthest towards making all things unequal. Trotting nonchalantly past a yeti, an animal that in some of the stories can fell a yak with a single blow, all in all it seemed a good time to call it a day. On the way down he saw more tracks on the slopes below, but they were distant and inaccessible, and the light was getting worse. He took five or six photos that, when eventually developed, came out black. As he passed the footprints he'd seen originally, he took some close-ups, but three hours had passed and the prints were no longer distinct. After administering the monster hunter's time-worn self-kick, he descended towards Gangjaria, the village of the Pulna, and finally Joshamath. At first he thought he would spill the beans down at Pulna and tell everybody what he had seen, and then come back up the next day, maybe, and see what evidence there was. But he decided against that, partly because he was concerned about the animal. If the locals, and especially the soldiers down at Joshamath, decided to set off looking for it, well, you never know what they could have done. And secondly, the weather was turning bad. So he knew that by the next day the footprints would have been snowed over, and provided the animal hadn't been injured, it would have got well away over the call. So there wouldn't have been actually anything to see. He was pretty convinced of that. So I decided to keep the whole thing to myself, to go on and finish the run as if nothing had happened. It was very, very difficult for me because I was bursting to tell. But he kept his secret as he ran through the mountains for several more days, covered his 200 miles and raised 2,300 pounds for tradecraft, 1,300 over his goal. In fact, he more or less kept the secret for four more months. Of course, he had the film developed and took the pictures around to people who had seen or failed to see evidence of yetis, respectively. For example, John Hunt and Chris Bonington. He talked to Dr. Myra Shackley, archaeologist and longtime yeti enthusiast, and to Dr. Brian Bertram, curator of mammals at London Zoo. He talked to other zoologists, anthropologists, and mountaineers, all of whom, he says, seemed fascinated. But he didn't go public, as it were, until he appeared with Chris Bonington on BBC One's Wild Britain in July. Four months seemed plenty of time for the Yeti to have escaped its avalanche and to have returned to that untraceable place where all the Yetis live. But... Mightn't the news now still set off an expedition? I am very concerned that people should think carefully about whether it's really necessary. One of the natural reactions, I think, among scientists, is to say, to be positive about identifying what it is, and in order to find out what we need to do to protect it, we've got to capture one. But it seems to me that... In this technological age, we've got such a lot of ways of studying with remote cameras and image intensifiers at night, that sort of thing. I'm not at all sure that it is necessary to capture the animal, particularly one like this, which seems to have been coexisting with man for thousands of years. 
we don't know how many there are. They certainly can't exist in large numbers, and maybe just taking one out of the population might be enough to destabilize it. He says that he is reporting his experience now, and that he had always intended to report it at some point, so that people take stories of footprints and of other sightings more seriously, and so that the Indian government, perhaps with the help of the World Wildlife Fund, might consider this enough evidence to give the animal protection. In his written account, he ends with a quote from Tillman's book, Mount Everest, 1938. When the dust of conflict had settled, the abominable snowman survived to pursue his evasive, mysterious, terrifying existence, as unruffled as the snow he treads, and unmoved as the mountains in which he dwells, uncaught, unspecified, but not without honor. Copyright from BBC Wildlife Magazine, September 1986 issue. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. Field and Stream, January 2000. Print Pro says Bigfoot may exist. Eerily similar tracks are found miles and years apart. Police officer and forensic primate print expert Jimmy Chilcutt of Conroe, Texas, and Dr. Jeff Meldrum, an anatomy and anthropology professor at Idaho State University, share a passion. They examine the prints left by hands and feet to reveal the identity of unseen visitors. But while the testimony of fingerprint expert Chilcutt can prove a person guilty in a court of law, Meldrum's assertions that certain footprints constitute evidence of the legendary Bigfoot's existence raises eyebrows of scientist colleagues. Meldrum hopes some skeptics will change their minds after hearing what Chilcutt has to say about the footprint castings Meldrum has collected from the Pacific Northwest. The ridge detail, finger pattern, on the cast is neither man nor ape, says Chilcutt. Is it possible to have faked it? Sure, but the faker would have had to have an intimate knowledge of primate footprints, and that didn't exist at the time the castings were made. Chilcutt initiated the study of primate fingerprints in the mid-1990s, working on a hunch, the identifying ridge patterns, the articles, loops, and whorls, made by folds in the skin, would someday help forensic specialists catch criminals. He explains that it would be helpful if criminologists could identify the race of a person by his fingerprints. But research in that direction has been inconclusive, Chilcutt believes because the races have interbred so much. Primates, however, have undiluted gene pools. To date, Chilcutt has more than 1,000 fingerprints of lemurs, monkeys, and apes in his computer databank. When he heard about Bigfoot castings in Meldrum's laboratory, he was intrigued but skeptical. What I do is catch bad guys in Conroe, Texas, Chilcutt says. I didn't care one way or the other if Bigfoot existed. But a casting made near Walla Walla, Washington in 1984 piqued his interest. Not only did the ridge pattern run vertically along the edges of the foot, 
then angle across underneath the toes, a pattern different from humans and apes, which have ridges running horizontally and at an angle across the foot pad, respectively, but the imprints showed splits in the feet where the ridges did not realign perfectly when the skin had healed. Chilcutt got a second jolt when he found a Northern California casting made in 1967. The pattern was similar to that on the Walla Walla casting, although made from a smaller animal. For them to be fake, Chilcutt believes the same person would have had to fabricate both footprints 17 years and several hundred miles apart. That seemed unlikely to Chilcutt, especially after he tried to duplicate the casting and failed. The fingerprints expert has become a believer. I can assure you, he says, there's an animal up in the Pacific Northwest that we have never seen. Keith McCafferty, Copyright, Field and Stream Magazine. That's the end of story number two. Story number three. Mount St. Helens, Ape Cave. Ape Cave in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest went unnoticed for about 2,000 years. Then, in 1951, Larry Johnson of Amboy, Washington, was logging in the area when he discovered the entrance to the Lava Tube Cave, which was at the time almost completely blocked with vegetation and timber growth. Johnson then related the find to the Harry Reese family, and they investigated and explored what is now known as Ape Cave. Why is it called Ape Cave? Well, Harry Reese was a scoutmaster of a Boy Scout troop called the Apes, so named because of their interest in the legend of Mount St. Helens and its Native American tales of old Sasquatch. Thus, the cave they explored in those years was tagged Ape Cave, after the scout troop of that day. Contrary to a published Bigfoot book, the 1924 Fred Beck story in Ape Canyon was not the motivation for the naming of the 1951 Ape Cave. The canyon story was on the other side of the Mammoth Mountain from Ape Cave. The scouts were influenced by the Native Americans and their campfire stories, which did not include Fred Beck, but rather focused on Native encounters with what they perceived as the mountain's hairy apes in the 1950s. There are no stories to support the notion that Sasquatches ever inhabited Ape Cave. The cave itself was formed 2,000 years ago. What is now a cave was once a stream bed. An eruption from the mountain's summit filled the gully with lava, which did not harden consistently. As the outward part of the flow cooled and hardened, the inner strand kept moving out the bottom of the cave. The lava flowed for three to six months, resulting in the cave as we know it today. At 12,810 feet, it is the longest such formation in North America. Walls average 30 feet thick. The forest grew up and over the main entrance until it was discovered by Lawrence Larry Johnson in 1951. In a roundabout way, it was indeed named after the legendary Sasquatch by way of a Boy Scout troop named the Apes. According to Native American legend, those apes were the elusive Sasquatch. 
This is the end of story number three. Story number four. Surgeon teams with filmmaker to find Almasty. Newspaper, the Long Beach Press Telegram. Article titled, Big Hunt for Bigfoot's Kin. Published Sunday, March 29, 1992. Associated Press. A spirited 72-year-old doctor and a filmmaker are teaming up for a summer expedition to track the Almasty, or snowman of the Caucasus, a huge, hairy beast with glowing red eyes, the hominid cousin of Yeti and Bigfoot. Dr. Jean-Marie Kaufman, a French-Russian surgeon, mountaineer, and scholar, has been on the Almasty Trail for more than two decades and has collected more than 500 accounts and a plaster-cast footprint of the forest man of the Caucasus. She traveled on horseback through the remote mountains between the Black and Caspian Seas, talking to villagers who had seen the mysterious beast. Although skeptical at first, she became convinced that the Almasty was another in an array of species that roamed the Caucasian wilds. Retiring in France on a tiny Soviet pension, she never dreamed that one day she'd have the money to mount a full-scale scientific search. But then she had not counted on Sylvan Pallax. Pallax, a documentary filmmaker, was fascinated by two articles Kaufman wrote for Archaeologia magazine. Tracking her down, he proposed finding sponsors for an expedition that he would film. The respected French paleoanthropologist Yves Copens gave the search his blessing. Pallax raised half of the needed 1.8 million. He's confident he'll find the rest. For three weeks, the telephone has been ringing off the hook, said Pallax, whose previous works have included a documentary on a Harley-Davidson meet in South Dakota and one on Calvados moonshiners. People are fascinated by the Almasty. A dozen people will leave Paris in June to be joined by a dozen of Kaufman scientific colleagues from Moscow. They will conduct the research in the Kabardin-Balkart region of Russia, just north of Georgia. The expedition hopes to find the beast, put it to sleep, take blood and skin samples and a plaster cast of the face, and then let it awake in freedom after putting on a band so its wanderings can be followed. Appearing like a cross between an ape and a Neanderthal, the Almasty reputedly can run up to 37 miles an hour. It is said to be omnivorous and sometimes travels with companions and babies. The last sighting of the Almasty was by a zoologist friend of Kaufman, who reported spending six minutes watching one on August 25, 1991. That's the end of story number four. Story number five. Argosy Magazine, April 1969. Wisconsin's Abominable Snowman by Ivan T. Sanderson, Science Editor. Argosy investigates a startling report of a dozen reliable witnesses and finds these remarkable tracks. My question was addressed to six of the men seated around the microphone, and it was deliberately somewhat vague. It was... Gentlemen, before we get down to the facts, I want each of you who were on the hunt 
to tell me, one at a time, what you first thought this creature was when you spotted it. Richard and Pete Vandenberg, Bob Perry, Dick Blyer, Bill Mallow, and Dick Tillock took their time in answering, but all their answers were legitimate because they gave me their first impressions first and then their efforts at rationalizing. For three of those present, it was a second encounter, which I did not discover until later. These three are local men and were hunting in the same swamp known as the Deltox Marsh, in which they, in company with nine others, encountered the creature again on a deer drive on November 30th. All three spontaneously said that their first impression was one of complete incomprehension. They didn't know what it was. Bob Perry, who was up in a tree scanning the huge swamp with its stands of trees and meandering tongues of bushes and scrub, saw it first and had it under observation at the closest range and for the longest time. He said his second impression, when he had recovered from his initial surprise, was that it was a lone hunter dressed in a very silly way. Both Dick Blyer and Bill Mallow, having seen it from the ground, and much less clearly, due to the patches of bushes, could only give their rather long accounts of their first attempt at rationalization, and during this both thought it might be a bear, but, they added, they had immediately changed this to some crazy hunter, or more like an ape. By the time of the deer drive, six weeks later, these three had all come to the conclusion that it was not a bear because of its very long legs and the speed and silence with which it moved, which our black bear cannot do when standing upright, nor a hunter. This puzzled me, especially because the other three present, who had seen it only once on the drive, all said that their first impression had been of a bear standing upright, but when it sort of danced around and then got in behind the bushes, as Dick Tellick put it, their second thoughts also were that it was a man. When it came to third and subsequent thoughts, all six reached the conclusion that it was neither bear nor man, and they debated the possibilities for us around the microphone. Finally, they came up with a combined notion, approved by all present, that it was some kind of a man that behaved like an ape, and more particularly like a chimpanzee. This, of course, prompted my next and most obvious question. You mean a man wearing a monkey suit, putting on a sort of act? There was a guffaw from everybody at the table, except my traveling companion, Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, of the Royal Institute of National Sciences of Belgium, who has spent a lifetime tracking down reported but as yet uncaught animals. Joining most heartily in this explosion was Larry McEvitt, a police officer and local game warden who had actually supervised the drive. Accompanying this outburst were cries of, It would have been suicide! Somewhat taken aback and asking what this was all about, I got the answer, You don't know the hunters who come up here in the deer season. And it's the truth. Anybody who dressed themselves up in a monkey suit and then danced around in the open in front of a line of even local hunters 
giving his famous imitation of a dancing bear or a distraught escaped ape, could only be intent on suicide. Not even an escapee from a city on his first hunt would wear his wife's fur coat or a furry parka. Twelve men made a drive through this Deltox marsh, moving abreast at about twenty paces apart. The game warden was out to observe the start of the drive, just to check out the hunters and see that all was legal and in order, but he remained on one of the roads that surrounded the swamp. He did not see the creature, and he had gone elsewhere by the time the party came out at the other end of the swamp about three miles away. This swamp, some four by two miles in extent, is surrounded by farmlands dotted with numerous woods, thickets, and marshes, which are overgrown with three to four foot tall canary grass. There are two large spring-filled dew ponds, locally called fountains, in this swamp, one to the north, one to the near center. In addition to the six men already named, there were on the drive Kurt Kruger, Artie Tellock, Lester Zulhaik, Don Scania, Romy Scanvia, and a visitor from Milwaukee. An interesting point is that their ages range from 12 to 55, and three of them have been in the armed forces. All saw the thing at the same time, though some closer than others, and some for a longer time. Holdan Savina and Artitelic got too dim a sight of it to comment. Shortly after entering the more open grass field center area of the swamp, the three on the left suddenly spotted something black standing in the grass, which reached only about halfway up its thighs. They didn't shoot. It was manlike. Confused, they called the line to a halt and passed the word along. The creature then began to walk to their left, moving forward as quietly as possible. They wheeled around and got very close to it. The creature then began to retreat, but when they stopped, it stopped. And when they moved back, it came toward them. It finally moved into the thickets in the direction of some woodland to the northwest. They tried to follow, but the brush was too thick, so they circled around as fast as they could with a view to heading it off or to be waiting for it to emerge on the road beyond, on which, incidentally, they had left their cars. There they watched for a considerable time, but it did not appear. The composite description of the creature that emerged was that of a large and powerfully built man covered with short, very dark brown or black hair, and, as invariably in descriptions of these creatures, with a lighter and hairless face and hairless palms. The head appeared smallish, also with short hair, but the neck appeared to be enormous and so short as to be almost non-existent. The shoulders were very wide and large, and the torso barrel-shaped. In a six-way discussion at our interview, some time was spent on the proportionate length of the arms, body, and legs. Analyzing this exchange from the tape, it seems that while the body seemed to be very long, this was due to the absence of any noticeable waist. All of them said that it tapered from the shoulders right to the hips. As for a description of the legs, they could only guess since the creature was standing in grass, which 
They estimate it to be between three and four feet tall. Some at first said the legs were short, others that they were long, but this was before they decided that they should speak of their length in proportion to the body rather than in comparison to a man or an ape. Then they all agreed that they would be of about average length for a tall man, since the grass did not reach to the crotch. But it was concerning the arms that all seemed agreed, feeling that they were exceptionally long for a man. I can vouch for these young men's honesty, their sincerity and exceptional intelligence, because we gave them a pretty thorough and skillful interrogation. Bernard Huvelmans was once nicknamed the Sherlock Holmes of zoology on his French TV science series. Trained zoologists can set some deadly traps for non-zoologists. This may be summarized. First, they agreed. It did not seem to be afraid. And they felt sure it had seen them from the outset. Its movements were almost leisurely, and it seemed to deliberately come out from behind the bushes several times to observe them. Altogether it impressed them, as it had done the three previously in October, as being distinctly curious and even inquisitive and rather bold in its approach to them, though duly cautious in that it retreated before them and kept at a safe distance. Of its body motions they had much to say. It walked just like a man, but slightly forward and with a sort of swinging motion of the arms. On more than one occasion it seemed deliberately to try to attract their attention by sort of jumping around. Now, all this, and a tremendous amount of further hints and details contained in our taped record, on analysis adds up to but one thing, a hominid. This means something on the human branch of the general anthropoid tree rather than on that of the apes or pongids. In view of the fact that there never have been any wild apes in North America, and that they are very valuable specimens in zoos, circuses, and laboratories that, if one got away, it would be immediately reported, and also because it is very doubtful that any known ape could survive in Wisconsin into the fall. This leaves us with only two alternatives. Either it was a deranged person in a monkey suit attempting suicide, or it was one of the half-dozen or so kinds of man-creatures that we call collectively ABSMs, abominable snowmen. Finally, it came as a considerable surprise to us to learn during the interview I described above that this particular specimen, or one just like it, was seen on no less than five occasions in that immediate area last fall. Sometime in the early fall, a Mr. Freeman encountered just the same thing in an area known as the Lebanon Swamp. Perry, Flyer, and Mallow ran into it on the 19th of November. There was this drive on the 30th of November, and the very next night a Mr. and Mrs. Stan Pencala almost ran into it on one of the nearby roads. Then, as we were concluding our interview, four young local men came in to say that some youngsters had just led them to two long trails of tracks in the fresh but slightly crusted snow, again adjacent to the Deltox Marsh. I'm afraid that this development seemed too pat 
We went to see the tracks, and they displayed some very dubious features that would have been puzzling enough if they had been found on the top of the Himalayas. But by this I mean they looked more than suspiciously man-made, in that they were enormous individually, but had exactly the same stride as my own. While both sets either appeared out of deep wood into which we had not the time or means at night to follow them back to their point of origin, or started from a blacktop road and cut across open fields to another thick wood. Also, on one occasion, they stepped over a waist-high barbed wire fence without messing the snow or leaving any hairs. But perhaps we went to look at these tracks in too skeptical a mood, and our appraisal may have been prejudiced. Copyright Argosy Magazine Ivan Sanderson Sanderson, Ivan Terrence, 1911-1973 through 1973. Sanderson received degrees with honors in geology, zoology, and botany, and headed six expeditions in all parts of the world for such groups as the British Museum, Cambridge, and London Universities, the Linnaean Societies of London, and the Chicago Natural History Museum. He was the author of many books. One, Animal Treasures, was a Book of the Month selection in 1937. Others include The Hairy Primitives of Ancient Europe, 1967, Caribbean Treasure, Animals Nobody Knows, Living Treasure, Animal Tales, How to Know American Mammals, The Monkey Kingdom, and Living Mammals of the World. The Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, written in 1961, and countless articles for various publications and Argosy magazine, where he was science editor. This concludes the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.